This is Matt Hurt at Obsessive Viewer on Twitter. This is Tiny at Obsessive Tiny on Letterboxd. This is Ben Sears at Ben Sears on Letterboxd. And this is ObsessiveViewer.com's The Obsessive Viewer Podcast. And welcome to The Obsessive Viewer, where a movie and TV podcast that covers a specific topic, be it genre, trope, movie, or show each episode. You can find more of our work at ObsessiveViewer.com. You can also like us on Facebook and join the Facebook group at Facebook.com slash The Obsessive Viewer. And you can also support us on Patreon at Patreon.com slash Obsessive Viewer, in which if you uh, pledge $1 per month, you get access to a full 120 some odd um, currently episodes of just be roll bullshit stuff that we talk about before each episode i put a clip of each one of those or i put a clip of uh, from that uh, feed at the end of each episode of the podcast and if you pledge two dollars uh, uh, on patreon you get access to that plus tv reviews that i do uh, on a so far weekly basis um i recently reviewed the entire series of superstore and i did weekly reviews of falcon and the winter soldier and i will be doing a weekly review of of Loki when it airs. And coming up this week, I'll have a review of season one of Rutherford Falls on Peacock. So a lot of stuff there. And then also if you pledge $5 per month, you get access to all of that, plus commentary tracks that I do semi-weekly. Um, I recently did a commentary track for Sunshine, Doctor Sleep, The, the Shining, um, Coming up, I've got uh, Captain America's Civil War and Children of Men and uh, another one. Um, <laughs> I also did one for seven, so a lot of stuff there. And then uh, if you pledge $10 per month, you get access to all of that, plus early access to episodes uh, before they're released um, as a special kind of treat for people who listen to Anthology. Um, if you pledge $10 on Patreon... On May 21st, you will have access to my entire seven-episode bonus episode review series of the new uh, uh, Amazon Prime science fiction anthology show, Solos, which is coming out May 21st. So the day that that show airs, if you pledge $10 on Patreon, you will have access to all seven of those bonus episodes <laughs> all at once. And then the main feed on anthology will have that released weekly. So anyway... All of that's at patreon.com slash obsessive viewer. I've been really hitting the pavement to just pump out a bunch of uh, content on Patreon, and I love doing it. And if you guys pledged on Patreon, all that money goes toward paying the fees to keep all of the podcasts up and running and is incredibly appreciated. Again, that's at patreon.com slash obsessive viewer. And uh, my sales pitch is gone now. I'm done. <laughs> I'm your aforementioned host, Matt Hurt. And with me today is Tiny and the aforementioned Ben, uh, recurring co-host and contributing reviewer for ObsessiveViewer.com. Uh, Tiny and Ben, how are you guys doing without your headphones? Sup. Okay. Good. Sorry, I can't hear you. Uh, my headphones yeah. on. <laughs> um, so, okay. Uh, yeah, so how's it going? Good, good, good. Good. Nice. Wonderful. Nice. Um, we are farmers. Da, 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 da. Uh, I got nothing. Um, yeah. So are you guys excited to talk about some Ebert's great movies? I am. Very. Nice. Nice. And we do have some business to attend to. Um, 
before or in between our last recording, the uh, Academy Awards happened. Yeah. I did not watch them. Nope. Tiny did not watch them. Ben, did you watch them? Of course I did. Nice. <laughs> I'm so glad that you said that. <laughs> uh, how did you feel about uh, the whole presentation and Soderbergh's work? Um, you know, I feel like I'm in the minority of people who actually liked the show. Interesting. Um, I heard a lot of blowback uh, from people who just outright hated it. Mm-hmm. And I have you guys heard or seen any clips or anything about it or how it how it worked? Honestly, I have not seen a, seen a single clip, <laughs> and it's not. I, I mean, it's something that I, I I woke up the next morning thinking like I probably should have watched it, like just as a piece of history, and also the job that I have is a, at a hobby level. But um, <laughs> uh, but also I don't know. I just I, I just was not feeling it, and I was. The only, like, reaction I had, like, I mean, I, I was happy with the winners, like, uh, Nomadland won Best Picture, and mm-hmm. um, uh, Promising Young Woman got Best Original Screenplay, and uh, Chloe Zhao got Best Director. Yes. Well, like, those are good, good ones. Um, I haven't seen The Father, but I was really, I I was surprised, just as everyone was, that Anthony Hopkins got Best Actor. Um, mm-hmm. but yeah, pizza, I swear to God, <laughs> she must be part of the show. She, yeah. She's got thoughts on the Oscars too. Yeah. yeah. When I recorded my first bonus review for solos, uh, no, 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 this was when an upcoming episode of anthology, I was recording it and, uh, there was a cat on the balcony and pizza was going crazy. Mm. So there's a part mm. in episode 72 of anthology where I have to stop what I'm doing and open the blinds, pause the recording and just mercilessly beat pizza. Um, <laughs> not really. I would never. I would never do that. But, uh, but yeah, it was it was terrible. Anyway, what were we talking about? The Oscars, uh, Ben. How'd you feel about the the results and everything? Yeah, and the presentation. Um, I mean, we could dedicate an entire episode to how I felt about the Oscars mm-hmm. and how it worked out. I mean, if you guys want to just leave this recording and just go and run an errand or something, I could just rant for a while and you can come back and we can get back to it. I can mercilessly beat my cat. (laughs) (laughs) But, um, yeah, I think really the only, yes, it's it's incredible that uh, Chloe Zhao won Best Director, Nomadland won Best Picture. I mean, there were so many firsts for her and for uh just other just different uh groups that have not been represented or won very much at uh the Oscars. Mm-hmm. Um Daniel Kaluuya got his first Oscar. Yeah. Uh which was great. Um but I mean obviously the biggest uh thing that people have latched on to is Chadwick Boseman not winning and just how that all went down. Did you guys hear anything about how the the end of the night went? Yeah, the no. way the way I understand it is that they for some reason decided to announce the best picture before best actor? Was it was it just before just best actor or before the acting categories? So it was the third to last. And then, uh, yeah, after Best Picture, it was Best Actress, then Best Actor. They saved Actor for last. Huh. 
That's weird. Which, yes. Yeah. Which never happens. Right. Uh, best picture right. is always last yeah. for a reason. And so they can fuck it up and say that um, <laughs> say that a different movie got it instead of Moonlight. Right. Um, right. Yeah. <laughs> anyway. Um, so I, everyone else has said this already, so it's not really a hot take or anything, but the only reason that I could think of why they would do that is because they figured it was such a sure bet that Chadwick Boseman was mm-hmm. going to win. Yeah. And they wanted to end on that emotional high note, uh, which I, you know, if you're trying to sell a TV show, I don't blame them on that. I mean, yeah, yeah. best picture was pretty much wrapped up long before the mm-hmm. Oscars. So, uh, I can't fault them there too much, I guess. I mean, it, it still was pretty weird, but, I know a lot of people were upset and uh, borderline angry almost about Bozeman not winning. Right. Um, but, I mean, if you really, if you're a Oscar nerd like I am, then it wasn't such a huge shock. I mean, um, Anthony Hopkins won the BAFTA for Best Actor. Mm-hmm. Um Plus, there were just a whole bunch of other factors, uh, including like Ma Rainey not getting a Best Picture win. Yeah, it did get Best Costuming, right? Yes, that was cool. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it it just all pretty much boiled down to just low enthusiasm for Ma Rainey overall. I think, hmm. um, but yeah, uh, I I was also feeling kind of down about. Chadwick Boseman not winning and it, yes it would have been great but I heard on a different podcast I forget which one exactly but uh the other actor that had lost a posthumous best actor nomination twice was James Dean oh so, interesting huh. yeah I didn't know that wow yeah because I only knew of the wins of Heath Ledger and the guy from Network Peter Finch Peter Finch right um, I think oh, there have been more people that have been nominated. I can't couldn't uh, tell you who though, hmm, but okay. yeah, um, hmm. James Dean nominated twice and both lost both times. So wow, if if people want to, I mean, it's it would have been great to say Chadwick Boseman an Oscar winner, but yeah. it's not you know the end all be all. Th- that's true. What I kind of keep coming back to is that that performance, like extenuating circumstances of his tragic death like regardless of that like that performance i feel was completely oscar caliber right um tiny did you ever see my rainy's back i haven't seen it yet okay it's it's my wife is not interested in it which Uh, boggles my mind but yeah mm. so we haven't watched it yeah yeah uh the movie itself is okay okay uh but yes the the performances are uh incredible nice um there was also discussion about or like theories abound that the reason that the other reason that they were wanting to do best actor last is because uh they figured that uh whoever i don't know if this is just a cynical like twitter reaction or, or if this is like a legitimate theory but um they wanted to end the night on um an award that no one was there to actually give a speech to, to kind of wrap it up quick, I guess. Um, yeah. yeah. Cause Anthony Hopkins was not there. Right. He wasn't at one of their satellite 
places. And they wouldn't so, let him do a Zoom right. one. And so the the ceremony just ends, and it's not only do you have the shock of Chadwick Boseman not winning, but you have nobody there to give the last speech of the night, which just Jeez. felt so weird and yeah. abrupt and just ended, felt like a wet fart almost. Mm. Just, <laughs> yeah. There, um, how was the music? Because they didn't have like an orchestra. Was it, was it, right? How did they do the music on that? They did not do uh, the best song performances like they normally oh, do. Oh, okay. That was I wasn't all... even talking about that. I was just talking about like the oh yeah, no. Uh, so Questlove was a DJ. That's right. Um, <laughs> nobody, <laughs> uh, nobody got played off when their speeches mm. went long, uh, which was mm. kind of cool. Nice. Um, and yeah, mm. I I cool. didn't mind the perf- the the show overall. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. There are things that I didn't like about it and things that I mm. understand that people didn't like, but I didn't mind it. Okay. Hmm. Well, uh, maybe I'll watch it next year. I don't know. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I just, I, I think it's just an extension of 2020 and everything. Just, I, I just had so little interest in actually watching it. Like when it actually came about, I was just like, I, uh, I don't really feel like it. Um, me too. It was so oh. off my radar. Yeah. 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 Um, but speaking of Chloe Zhao, I guess, um, <laughs> uh, I did want to touch on this and then we can get into the Ebert's Great Movie stuff. But um, Marvel uh, released a video um, that kind of just outlined a lot of um, uh, release dates for their Phase 4, phase four movies. <laughs> So to Is run them, only phase four now. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. Oh yeah. Okay. Uh, so to run them down, we've got Spider-Man No Way Home coming out December 17th, 2021. Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness, March 25th, 2022. Thor Love and Thunder, May 6th, 2020, no, wait, 2022. Jesus. <laughs> Black Panther Wakanda Forever, July 8th, 2022. Uh, the Marvels, November 11th, 2022. Uh, Ant-Man and the Wasp, Quantumania. February 17th, 2023, and Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3, um, May 5th, 2023. And uh, yeah, and then uh, to read from the Mashable article I have popped up, finally, the feature had ended by flashing a blue logo, which is a cryptic tease at the MCU's take on the Fantastic Four. Mm. Um, So did you guys watch this video? I did. Yes. Uh, What did you guys think about it? How did you guys feel? It was really cool. I mean, just honestly, it was all the stuff before that. Oh, like, yeah. All the stuff that we've right. already seen, all the mm-hmm. like the conglomerate or the compilation, I guess, of yeah. uh, stuff from all the Avengers movies and everything. Mm-hmm. Um, and did you mention the Eternals in there? Oh, that wasn't Eternals. on the list. Yeah. Yeah. yeah the Eternals Black, is obviously. Black Widow's happening first. In Black in Widow. July. Right. Yeah. right. And then Shang-Chi. Oh, Shang-Chi, yeah. I didn't read the whole article. (laughs) Uh, Shang-Chi is in September, I think. Uh, Black Widow is July. And Eternals, I think, is still in November. Yeah, I thought it was this year, but I couldn't remember. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, so, I mean, there's, I mean, just this year, there's exciting stuff coming up. Yeah, I I did not know that uh, the next Spider-Man was coming out this year. Oh, you didn't? No. Okay. I mean, I knew it was coming out soon, but not this year. They had a really good or really charming uh, 
uh, title unveil video. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was really, really good. It was um, Zendaya, Tom Holland, and the guy that plays what's his name, the friend, um, mm-hmm. coming out of like the office. It was, it was really good. It was it was it was okay. cute. Nice. Um, yeah, it was a fun little video. Did they just did they just kind of post that randomly? I mean, um, yeah. My thinking is they it's a Disney company, so <laughs> I feel like maybe they just released that on May the third to, um, I don't know, as a like because everything is Star Wars today, May the fourth. So right, yeah. right, yeah. Hmm. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know the rhyme or reason of it. Gotcha. Um, of that list, what is your what are you what are you guys most looking forward to? Mm, that's a tough one. Yeah, probably the Eternals. Nice. Yeah, yeah. just because of the cast, and mm-hmm. they barely showed anything from that. So yeah, yeah, it's still a pretty big mystery. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, yeah, I, I would say probably. Um, Oh, I don't know. I'm looking forward to all of them, honestly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Shang Chi, I'm very uh, curious about. Yeah. I'm uh, I'm excited for all the ones that are coming out next year, mm-hmm. like the next Thor movie. Yeah, yeah. Uh, should be great. Doctor Strange. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. Uh, the next Black Panther. Really yeah. excited for that. I'm very curious uh, how that's going to go down. Right. I'm curious what they're going to do. Yeah. It reminds me that I saw this fucking obnoxious tweet. Um, like, like a few days, like within three days of Chadwick Boseman dying, um, some guy tweeted like directly at Letitia Wright and like the tweet was some like fucking completely out of touch thing. Like, Hey, I hope you're prepared to take up the, take up the mantle of Black Panther. Uh, cause I, Shuri is definitely going to be the one that's going to be Black Panther. And I'm like, wow. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So Go ahead and you know just just send a send a message on the internet to someone who just lost a friend right. tragically a friend and coworker and talk about the uh, <laughs> the magic superhero universe that they're in. Um, yeah, talk about work. Yeah, people yeah. are so fucking out of touch. The internet's a bummer sometimes. Yeah, it sure is. Yeah, um, but you know what's not a bummer sometimes. Is the Roger Ebert's Great Movies list? Oh, yeah, we should get to um, that. Yeah, or is so, it? <laughs> or or is it? Yes. So, wink, wink. yes. So today on the podcast, we are going to be covering um, three movies. Uh, this is part eight of our Ebert's Great Movies list review uh, series. Uh, that this is the first time that we are having. Um, that we're bringing in a third one, uh, a third person in on it, because it's usually me and Ben. Hello. So this is the fabled Matt and Ben three-way. Glad I could join um, you. From Patreon. God. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, well, we're happy to have you, um, even if you guys aren't wearing headphones. <laughs> I'm going to keep being passive-aggressive about that and not call attention to why I'm, like, what it means to the listener. So... <laughs> Anyway, um, so I'm going to play the uh, jingle that only I'm going to be able to hear. Um, for the Ebert's, I'm so sorry. For the Ebert's Great Movies List Review, so here we go. No name is more synonymous with film criticism than Roger Ebert's. Even now, my voice is reaching millions throughout the world. Millions of despairing men, women, and children. People say, do film critics have too much power? For those who can hear me, I say, do not despair. We can help a movie. We can help a movie by sharing our enthusiasm. 
We can't necessarily hurt a movie that is destined to be a big hit anyway. You, the people, have the power to make this life free and beautiful, to make this life a wonderful adventure. And then Roger Ebert gets up. What I uh, find very offensive and condescending about your statement is nobody would say to a bunch of white filmmakers, how could you do this to your people? Let us all unite! All right, so the Ebert's Great Movies List review, or uh, the concept is that each edition of this review series, uh, Ben and I and Tiny, uh, for as many as he wants to be on, mm-hmm. um, we each select a single movie from Roger Ebert's Great Movies List and review slash discuss them in a special series of podcast episodes. And the quote by Mr. Ebert himself um, that's in relation to his great movies essays is quote, one of the gifts a movie lover can give another is the title of a wonderful film. They have not yet discovered here are more than 300 reconsiderations and appreciations of movies from the distant past to the recent past, all of movies that I consider worthy of being called great. And tiny, this was your first time actually hearing the, uh, the little interstitial thing. So how did you feel about the, uh, the 20 or so seconds of it that you heard? <laughs> <laughs> Very inspirational nice. as, uh, as he always was. Muted, no, we're not. We're good. Okay. Yeah. yeah we're good. Um, cause I can hear it in my headphones. <laughs> so <laughs> just saying, uh, <laughs> professional equipment. Anyway, <laughs> so, uh, no, I've derailed yeah. what you guys were talking about. Oh, that's fine. <laughs> um, but yeah, so so yeah, uh, just that that was just something I slapped together. The music is from the trailer for the last movie that that Ebert uh, reviewed, oh. which was um, a Terrence Malick movie. I can't, oh, I can't remember what the title was. Everybody walks. Is that a Terrence Malick movie? <laughs> I don't know. I'm not a Terry Malick fan. Okay, couldn't tell you. Yeah, yeah. I'm gonna look it up. Um. So anyway, so on this edition, uh, we are doing triple duty. And we are going to be talking about the circus and uh, Paths of Glory and um, the Searchers. And I'm stalling here because I can't find. Oh, screw it. No one. I, I don't know uh, <laughs> what the song was from. So as we do on this on these uh, episodes, um, <laughs> uh, we go chronologically. So in the last edition of this, uh, of this review series, um, I selected the circus, Ben selected the searchers and tiny selected paths of glory. And so since the circus was released in 1928, we will begin with the circus. If you guys don't mind. Sure. Um, yeah. So I'm going to go ahead and read a plot summary of the circus courtesy of its letterboxed, um, posting. So, uh, like I said, the circus came out in 1928 directed by Charlie Chaplin. Uh, Charlie, a wandering tramp becomes a, uh, circus handyman, soon the star of the show and falls in love with the circus owner's stepdaughter. Um, so the reason that I picked this movie was because I knew that we were going to be doing three reviews and I wanted to choose one of the shortest movies that, uh, <laughs> I could find on the list. And this clocked in at a nice brisk 72 minutes that I finished <laughs> watching, uh, like I finished watching it about 10 minutes after you guys arrived to record. Right. Yep. So that's something. Um, but more importantly, I really wanted to see it because one of my kind of blind spots is Charlie Chaplin. And I, I mean, 
I've seen, I was telling Ben before Tiny got here and before we started recording that um, this was only my third Charlie Chaplin movie, like mm. ever. And to put that into context, I count The Great Dictator as one of my top 25 favorite movies of all time. Wow. <laughs> like it is that powerful and incredible. And um, Tiny, you would have heard this because it is in the last 20 seconds of it. Um, but the dialogue from uh, from uh, from The Great Dictator can be found in that. I thought that's um, what that was. Yeah. And I mean, that, that speech, I've said it before many times on the podcast, that speech is one of the greatest moments of in film history that I've ever seen. Mm-hmm. Um, just in, incredible. Ben, you, you've seen The Great Dictator. I have not. Oh, you haven't? Uh, okay. Yeah, I, I definitely need to get to it soon. Very interesting. Yeah, me too. Okay, nice, nice. Um, I recommend it, obviously. Yeah, this <laughs> so, movie kind of piqued my interest. Yeah. So, um, having said that, Tiny, you confided to me that this was your first, not only your first Charlie Chaplin, mm-hmm. but your first uh, film from the silent era. Yeah. Is that right? Nice. Yeah, it is. How did you feel about the silent film experience? I was a little hesitant going in uh, just because of the, I mean, it's almost 100 years old. I've never seen mm. a movie that old. And the whole silent thing, you know, I was just concerned that it was going to be so out of left field that I wasn't going to be able to enjoy it. But I'm happy to report that uh, I actually really enjoyed it a lot. It was... Uh, Nice. Just a really cool experience. Um, the only other silent movie I've seen is uh, The Artist. Oh, okay. yeah. That's uh, yeah. right. I was going to ask about that. Th- that yeah. was it. But, you know, obviously it wasn't from the silent era. Right. It was more of a gimmick than anything, I think. Yeah. The silent thing. Which I like that movie fine. Uh, it was mm-hmm. a little, little overrated, I think. But, uh, but yeah, so The Circus was the true the true first silent movie I've seen from the silent era. And the first Charlie Chaplin movie I've ever seen. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, I'm really excited you picked it. Because I'm glad you picked it. Because it was a really cool experience. And it, like I said, it piqued my interest. I definitely want to see The Great Dictator. Mm-hmm. Which is not a silent movie. No. Right. No, no, no. But um, some of his other, I'd, I'd be curious to see some of his other ones. Mm-hmm. Um, Gold Rush, I think, is a big one. And yeah. Yes. Yeah. Modern Times. Really? Okay. Modern Times. Um, a bunch of other movies that he made. City Lights. <laughs> City Lights. Oh, City yep. Lights is really good. City is Lights is yeah. probably my favorite of his. Nice. nice. Yeah. Sweet. Cool. Yeah. Cool. I was really um, happy or I, I, was gl- I was glad with the fact that the comedy held up. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a hundred years old, and like, there's no talking. I was right. really concerned. It was like, is it actually going to be funny? And I found myself laughing out loud several times. So. Nice. Yeah. yeah. The uh, the kind of bit that I want to do is um, just like, yeah, it was a really good movie. Just whenever their lips were moving, I couldn't hear a fucking thing they were saying. <laughs> and then they had these interrupting like pictures of just words. I'm like, I'm not going to read. If I wanted to read, I would watch a book. <laughs> um, so I don't. That's really dumb. Ben, how did you feel about the circus? Um, yeah, I, uh, I have seen a couple other Chaplin movies. I've seen, uh, the gold rush and modern times and city lights Mm -hmm. and this, and is modern, is modern times a silent movie? Yes. Okay. Uh, although there's, there's like one or two lines of dialogue, but, uh, yeah, it's, it's silent. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, and and this one fits right in with the rest of them. I mean, it's got everything else that the rest of those movies have. Um, nice. So I, I I enjoyed it. Mm. I like all of those movies, and I like this one. Nice. One of the things that always strikes me about like Charlie Chaplin and, and this 
particular era of, of film is that, like Tiny said, the, the humor does hold up. And that just, like, the choreography and the the kind of all the pieces that come together in the physic, physicality of the performance mm-hmm. is just, like, it's it's incredible. And I don't know if that's because that's where all of our attention is just routed into because it's a silent film. I don't know how much of that is that and how much of that is just meticulous choreography and incredible setups and, and payoffs to, to physical bits and everything. Um, so I don't know where it lands on that kind of spectrum or anything, but like that finale, um, we won't really spoil anything. I don't think we really need to do a spoiler section, but kind of the big, circus set piece at the end of the movie is like really thrilling and it escalates beautifully. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, it's kind of all of the things that you would expect from a kind of comedic silent film, um, in terms of just escalating everything. And the other thing that really struck me about this viewing of, of this particular Seinfeld, Seinfeld, this particular silent film is something that I honed in on was how, how much it really amplifies how much the music that's used in the movie um, dictates uh, great dictators um, <laughs> uh, dictates how like it puts more emphasis on the music to kind of have this have this rush of um, uh, oh, what's the word I'm looking for <laughs> like like propo- propulsive energy for the plot and, and mm-hmm. the energy of the movie is contingent on music and you know the the pictures that are moving on screen so mm-hmm. anyway how did you guys feel about those aspects of the movie and uh, the choreography and the, and the music to, to go along with that point I think if I remember right I think Chaplin composed some of the music for his own movies too yeah. I don't know if he did for this one, but I, he did it later in life. A, okay. yeah, yeah, a quick look on Wikipedia said that uh, 1928, the music was done by Max, someone. Um, but it, there is a version with music that he did in 1967, I think, um, that Chaplin did the music for. So I'd be okay. curious to see that version. He did that with a lot of his movies later in life. I mm. think he wrote music for him, and then when they would re-release them. Okay. Yeah. They'd use the music, uh, from my understanding anyways. Yeah. Brief side tangent on that. Have either of you guys seen, I haven't seen it, but have either of you guys seen the Chaplin biopic where RDJ, Robert Downey Jr. plays Chaplin? No, it's on my okay. list because it's on one of the streaming services. I think I saw it on HBO. And it might not be on there anymore, but okay. I definitely it definitely piqued my interest. Yeah, I I am interested in that mm, one. Me yeah. too. Yeah. Yeah. Part of it part of the reason why I haven't watched it is I kind of want to get more Chaplin titles under my belt before right. I mm-hmm. before I kind of dive into a full-on biopic, but I'm curious. I'm I'm definitely curious. I mean, he was obviously a very talented man <laughs> and I'm very uh very um interested in that. Um Ben, you've seen more from the silent era yeah. um, than me and Tiny combined. <laughs> um, but how do you feel Chaplin stacks up amongst his contemporaries of the time, like uh, uh, Harold Buster Lloyd, Keaton. Buster Keaton? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I've only seen one other Buster Keaton movie, and I have not seen any Harold Lloyd movies. Uh, but, I mean... The Tramp is just such an iconic character in movie yeah. history. So yeah. I I have always loved uh, Chaplin's movies and just the physicality that he brings to it and just 
you know so much about the tramp just as soon as you see him uh that it's it's just such a smartly written character you know right yeah just from the way he looks even i feel like the physicality is so apparent too like i feel mm-hmm. like he after a scene he just has to be exhausted mm-hmm. yeah. cuz he he's so emotive <clears throat> and he's constantly moving around cuz it's a strictly visual medium you know yes it's, uh and and i think that his performance and the performance of all the actors really just really it it commands your attention mm-hmm. uh, in in a different way that uh modern film doesn't or talkies don't yeah um and that's that's one of the strengths of silent movies that i at least <laughs> having only seen one right. i can't really be an authority on the, on the <laughs> on the subject but um that was my experience with this you're a white man on a podcast you have all the authority <laughs> to talk about it <laughs> nice um but yeah that that's the experience i had with this it just it really commanded my attention like i i watched it on my phone mm, nice. I watched the whole thing on my phone which i, I watch a lot of stuff on my phone yeah uh, and uh, i i in the past i would totally pan that i would say it's mm-hmm. a bad idea you shouldn't do that but it's yeah. it's become a regular thing for me and I, I didn't i don't feel like i've lost anything with this movie i feel like i didn't lose anything uh in the experience by watching mm-hmm. it that way mm-hmm. um and uh yeah it's just the the physicality of it and the the presence i guess the, mm. the the visual presence is really striking yeah uh in in this movie and and i assume other silent movies mm. there is yeah. uh if you want to get into buster keaton uh he has at least one maybe two movies on this list mm. uh one is called the general which i have seen uh which is i mean he is just such an incredible physical comedian as well like there's one bit where he's on a real locomotive and he's on the yeah. I don't even know what it's called the the like the arm that connects the wheels you know he's mm-hmm. sitting on that while the the train is going and it just goes up and down and up and down and he's I think there's even one point where he's in he's on the front like the the cow catcher or whatever mm-hmm. of the train mm-hmm. as it's going like full speed Jeez. and it's it's insane. I remember seeing like a video of how they did that. I guess they like reversed the film or something. They did something wacky with it, but right. right. Yeah. There's even like, I'm sure you guys have seen imitations of this where like, uh, he's standing like in a window frame or something. And then the front of a house falls down. Yes. Oh. Iconic. It, it goes yeah. through. That's a Buster Keaton thing. Mm-hmm. Okay. So I didn't know that. Yeah. Yeah. He's got a couple movies that are on streaming. So nice. if you're interested, check them out. One of my favorite pieces of trivia about Arrested Development is that they mimicked that house wall falling on and, uh-huh. and going through the window. Um, and that it's such a, such a nice like piece of meta, um, referencing because uh, the character that that happens to in Arrested Development is Buster Bluth, and it's like <laughs> the second time that a Buster has gone through a window like yeah. that in that same way. <laughs> it's funny, nice. Um, it's a lot of fun. Another um, another thing that stood out to me is the uh, just the practicality of of filming a movie in nineteen twenty seven twenty eight, yeah. um, which sort of speaks to what you were just saying, Ben. Um, there's a part in the movie where he's in a cage with a lion. Yes. And, you know, in 1928, there's no no kind of special effects. And, re- and really, like, I, I'm i assuming in the 20s, um, you know, the, 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 the magic of filming 
films didn't exist yet. Like there was there was no mm-hmm. standard. Like okay, we're gonna do like there, there was no such thing as a squib. Like how do you show someone getting shot in nineteen? Someone mm-hmm. had to invent right. it, or there's no standard for it, or you know there's no there's no giant pads that anyone makes that you can jump off a building and fall onto. Mm-hmm. And so it's it's all it's all innovation. That's what's crazy about a movie like this. Um, and so when they were filming that scene where he's in a cage with a lion, he had to go into a cage with a lion. Like there's no two ways about it. You can't, right. you can't fake it. There, there, that, that technology didn't exist and you had to do everything practically. And, yeah. and there was a guy on a, riding a, a bike or a tricycle up on a, up on a tightrope at one point, mm-hmm. and, you know, which I understand that's part of the circus, but like he had to do, probably do it several times for, for the movie. And it's, it's yeah. just incredible. He had monkeys on him and crap like that. Like yeah. that's really, impressive and i feel like a lot of the a lot of the practicality of filmmaking has kind of gone out the window mm-hmm. in, in our generation it went out the window a long time ago with with cgi and with um modern effects and stunt doubles and all that crap um not to take anything away from modern filmmaking but it's just it's it's a very charming and interesting aspect of films from this era mm-hmm. that i think is something i could see myself latching on to nice yeah I it, so while we're we're recording this, we don't know what e- our next picks are or anything. Mm-hmm. Um, but I want to say for a future installment, if none of us pick these three that I'm about to say, it would be fun to do like a themed, a themed edition of this where we just where we review the the general, uh, the great dictator, and safety last. So we get Buster mm-hmm. Keaton. Charlie Chaplin and Harold Lloyd oh, yeah. okay. all in one go. So maybe something to earmark for the future. Interesting. Okay. Um, but yeah, so what else can we say about it? The, um, yeah, the, the kind of just the, even in the beginning, the fun house stuff. Like I, I was going to ask you yeah. guys, had, first of all, have you guys ever been to the circus? Of course, there was the really... St. Christopher Cir- uh, Festival every summer. Oh, right. Yeah, well, yeah, <laughs> not quite the circus, but... right? <laughs> I had a Although Speedway sure has some animals <laughs> to God go there. Um, anyway, <laughs> I had a very bad experience at the circus as a kid. So oh, I, really? I don't remember. Yeah, that's where I almost died. Oh, I fell and like fractured my skull, and it was at Market Square Arena when I was like hmm. eight years old. What? <laughs> you don't know that story? I, I don't think I. Do yeah, my grandparents. How is it possible that I don't know that story? <laughs> yeah, I almost died. That was huh. a big part of my childhood. Um, and how f- how weird is it that you almost died when you fell and hit your head? Right. And your brother almost died when he fell and hit I his know. head. Concussions run in our family. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we were at Market Square Arena. I, mm. My grandparents took me to the circus, and uh, we were sitting. You know how there's like levels of stadiums, mm. and we were in the front row of the second level. Okay. Which there's a railing in front of you. You go up. You go up a flight of stairs, and then that's the front row, right? Mm-hmm. And so there's a railing in front of you and everything. <clears throat> and I was eight years old. I was goofing off, and I slipped, went through the railing, and I fell about ten feet, and I landed head first. Mm. And uh, I remember nothing because uh, I I was unconscious for almost a day uh, at the hospital. <laughs> what the fuck? <laughs> yeah. And so I have no memory of the circus whatsoever, and um. Yeah, I I'm just believe. blown. Like <laughs> Tiny, we've been friends for like how long? Like over 20 years. It's probably because we didn't play sports together. Oh, 
oh, I would always yeah. tell that story at sports because I I had like a couple more concussions <laughs> while going for football and stuff. Well, let's 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 not bury the lead here. I was the freshman football team manager. You were, you <laughs> and nine eleven was a really weird day for me. <laughs> um, <laughs> right. Reference to my. Anyway, a past episode. I'm sure it was a weird day just for you. (laughs) Well, it actually was because I was setting out the cones and everything for the footballers. And like, I was like, oh, there are no planes in the sky. Um, (laughs) Oh, boy. But yeah. Anyway, I put it on my live journal. Um, Yeah. Oh, Jesus. That has been purged from the Internet forever (laughs) and ever and ever. Uh, Cringe city population. DJ Maddie Fresh. (laughs) Good Lord. So anyway. (laughs) So yeah, that's my only experience with the circus. So I, I don't, I literally don't remember it at all. Okay, then uh, yeah. circus, like full on circus. Um, I remember going at least once. Um, maybe I was around eight years old or so, and I'm sure it was at Market Square Arena as mm. well. Um, but Were we yeah, at the same I, circus. <laughs> could be. <laughs> We're the same age. It was the same location. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't know. Uh, I don't really have any clear memories. I was, I've never been one of those people who's like afraid of clowns. So I, uh, I yeah. had no problem. Me neither. Me either. Yeah. yeah. So um, the circus is kind of, kind of fucked up. It, it kind of is. Yeah. Really yeah. Very, very exploitative of people and animals. Yeah. Not, not a good history there. It is kind of weird. Cause I, I remember when I was a kid, I went to the circus at Market Square, Square, Square Arena. Oh, okay. And like, I, I re- distinctly remember like pushing this kid off the ledge <laughs> and laughing so much. <laughs> it was really weird. Um, no, not real. I, I don't, I don't, I think I have like a memory of being at the circus when I was like very, very little. And like, I think I remember seeing like two elephants and like, that's literally the only memory I have. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I don't know. Do you anyway. think if Charlie Chaplin were alive today, do you think he would do the circus at a Cirque du Soleil show? Oh, yeah. <laughs> do you think that he would give two shits about this episode right now? <laughs> that has been derailed so far from the movie. Right. Um, but yeah, uh, have you guys ever seen Cirque du Soleil? No. Nope. Have not. Probably yeah, never will. Yeah. yeah. When I was in Vegas, they were there, but mm-hmm. they... Um, I was 18 and I was there with my parents. Oh yeah. And it was like Vegas baby. Right. Uh it was like a quasi erotic show. Oh, okay. So I was like god damn, I hope they don't want to go to that. <laughs> uh, we didn't thankfully. So. so you guys just went to the strip club instead. <laughs> right. Um, <laughs> we saw Mamma Mia. <laughs> nice. <laughs> Which was uh, delightful. So Mamma Mia was working that night at the, at the Glitter Gulch on uh, Fremont Street. Glitter <laughs> yeah. um, Gulch. Anyway. Um, that was really specific. It really was. And I wouldn't know that from when I went to Vegas and we spent like five hours in that fucking place. Oh my God. Uh, when we went in, there was like one of the people that were handing out like cards and stuff. Yeah. And when we came out, that same person was there. Jeez. And it was like, oh, that's uh, definitely... Uh, that's definitely, definitely just a memory. Should we save well, a story for yeah. Patreon? <laughs> Probably, yes. Um, I panicked just a little bit because I thought that I was muted still, but I'm not. Um, I was just peeking because I was being very loud. Anyway, uh, much like the ladies at the Glitter Culture. Anyway. Oh my God. So, <laughs> fuck. Uh, so the circus, um, the movie, it's, I mean, it's good. Um, in terms of ranking it, with the other two Charlie Chaplin movies I've seen, I would say it's third um, mm-hmm. under City Lights and The Great Dictator. Um, but that and and I feel kind of bad 
saying that because it's not like it's a dig at the circus at all because I enjoyed the circus quite a bit. It's just City Lights and uh, The Great Dictator are just just peak. All-time great. All-time greats, nice. yeah. Um, how like, uh, Ben, where does it rank with your, your viewpoint of the whole silent film era that um, you've seen? The whole silent film area or the Chaplin movies? Uh, let's go seen. Chaplin. And then if there's any, uh, um, yeah. I, yeah, I liked it quite a bit. Like I said, um, I would still put it, uh, I mean, City Lights is one of my favorite movies of all time. Um, mm-hmm. And I really love The Gold Rush. Uh, Modern Times is also great. And I would probably put this at maybe the same level as Modern Times, maybe a little bit below it. Um, okay. But yeah, the only other silent movies that I've seen are like The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari. Oh, yeah. Um, Previous Ebert's Great Movies List movie. Yeah, which is also pretty short, Tiny, if you want yeah. to check that out. Very it's, trippy it's and cool. proto-horror German yeah, movie, yeah. so very kind um, of abstract and yeah, very cool. Gotcha. Uh, the other ones that I've seen, um, I don't know. I'd I'd probably put this. Uh, I don't want to say near the bottom, but um, yeah, I don't know. I I would probably have to reevaluate or relook mm. at which ones I have seen. I know Sunrise is incredible which is also on this list so yeah i've also seen a uh uh what was his name griffith um the birth of the nation oh yeah that one w-e-b griffith yes yeah the other one that he did um fuck um the the uh the bar mitzvah of the nation (laughs) (laughs) uh starts with a d um the uh oh god i was trying to make another joke but i can't uh wb griffith D.W. Griffith. D.W. Griffith. Well, why? Um, i think wb intolerance that's the ones that i have seen of his oh and I've seen Broken Blossoms of his as well. But anyway, uh, yeah. Still would recommend... Um, Birth of a Nation? <laughs> <laughs> that is actually, that is on the Ebert's movies list. Yeah, yeah. We've we talked will, about we, that. Yeah, we will be skipping that one. That huh. and... Sorry, Tiny, if that was one of your picks. <laughs> there, like, there, there was this idea that I had that like the last Ebert's Great Movies List episode we would do would be that like Birth of a Nation and... Whatever the um, uh, Hitler, triumph of the will, triumph of the will, yeah. and like there's a third one that's on there. I think like Avatar or um, <laughs> <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't know. Cool. Um, is that a review of the circus? Yeah. Sure. Okay. So as is customary with these episodes, um, we are now going to ask Tiny. Is would this movie make your own personal, um, the great movies of all time list? And do you, what's your rating? Do you give it a thumbs up? 
And or if thumbs it, down. If it wouldn't make your list, you have to pick one that would go in its place. Yes, oh. which probably would have been a really good thing to tell you about before <laughs> we are yeah. 47 minutes into this recording. <laughs> uh, I would give it a thumbs up for sure. I think if I had like a top 100 list of all time, I don't think it's, this would be on it. Okay. Um, but I still feel like there's so many movies I need to watch. You mm-hmm. know, so many things I haven't seen. Um, yeah. What would I put in its place? Uh, Triumph of the Will. Jack and Jill. Um, um, Jack and Jill. <laughs> Grown Ups too. Yeah. Right. Oh, um, Jesus. Man, I don't know. Um, do you want know. us to come back to you? Does it need to be like something in the same category? No, no I like to make it something in the same category because I'm difficult, mm. but also that would be really unfair to you. <laughs> the um, artist. <laughs> right. Um, if I was going to say a comedy, I'd probably say some, it might be on this list. I'd say like Annie Hall. Oh, okay. Kind of like legendary. Annie Hall is on the list. Is yeah. it son mm. of a bitch? But mm-hmm. um, I don't know. Yeah, I'd have to. I'd have to come up with a comedy of some kind. Okay. Yeah. Maybe like Dumb and Dumber. Dumb and Dumber. That'd be a good one. Yeah, yeah that'd be a good one. Physical comedy. Mm-hmm, sure. That'd be a good one. Dumb and Dumber. Nice. Uh, cool. Uh, and do you give it a thumbs up or a thumbs down? Definitely a thumbs up. Nice. Yeah, I did nice. enjoy it. Um, sweet. Yeah. And Ben, your um, rating and deciding of great movies yes uh thumbs up um i don't think it would make my list and again not because i didn't like it Mm -hmm. but i like the gold rush better and i was a little surprised to see this one on the list and not the gold rush um i i just was blown away by the gold rush so i I have a question. I don't mean to derail us or anything, but are there two versions of the Gold Rush, aren't there? Yes. Is there a silent version and a talkie version, or how did that shake out? Do you know off the top of your head? Um, I I feel like there was one that was talkie-ish, but don't quote me on that. Okay. I just remember that it came out in like 1942 or something, mm-hmm. um, but I have not seen that version. Hmm. Uh, I re- I remember hearing about the unspooled episode where they talked about that though, hmm. um, and yeah, there was some some difference between the two. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Hmm. Um. So my rating, you said thumbs up, right? Yeah. Okay. Uh, I say thumbs up as well, and you know I'm so excited because I just I just thought of something. So. Thumbs up as well. Unfortunately, probably wouldn't make my t- my my great movies list. Um, just. You know, I, I just because it's like City Lights and, and The Great Dictator are stronger, in my opinion. And what I would put in its place would be something I just thought of off the top of my head that I just confirmed is not on the list, but uh, Galaxy Quest. Oh, um, uh, that's a good one. Yeah. Okay. So, Galaxy Quest. Great movie. Yeah. All right. All right. Shall we go on to our next movie? let In sure. this edition of the Ebert's Great Movies Lester Review. So, next up is 1956's John Ford movie selected by Ben, The Searchers. Ben, do you want to tell us the uh, plot summary and why you picked The Searchers? Yes. yes. So, um, Because you don't have a good relationship with this movie, right? Let's not get ahead of ourselves. Okay, yes. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so The Searchers, 1956, directed by John Ford. An American Civil War veteran embarks on a journey to rescue his niece from the Comanches. Mm -hmm. So. Damn it. I just, 
I was really I I've, I didn't have this prepped or anything, but I was going to say I was going to the way I was going to introduce that was like, so do you want to talk to us about the searchers, partner? And uh, anyway, anyway, so uh, right. Why'd you pick? Why'd you pick it? Great impression. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thanks, Pilgrim. <laughs> um. <laughs> so I have really wrestled with the Searchers more, maybe more than any other movie mm-hmm. in a long time, maybe ever. Um, I watched it for the first time because of the unspooled podcast where they went through the AFI's top 100 movies of all time list. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, so, so I watched it for that in 2018 or 2019 and really did not like it mm-hmm. at the time. And then came to find out when I listened to the episode that it is like one of like Spielberg's favorite movies of all time, one of yeah. Scorsese's, huh. and it's the inspiration for so many other movies. Mm-hmm. And I just could not wrap my head around that. And just the final end product on paper, just in my mind, just did not match up with mm-hmm. uh, what everyone makes of it, you know? Um, so I finally just, I, I don't know anybody else that has ever seen this personally. Okay. So I figured this would be as good of an opportunity as any to finally talk about it. Nice. And I, see I, if I was alone in that opinion, Yeah, hmm. you were searching for someone to, to talk to, talk to about this movie. Um, and that's interesting. Cause I kind of, I, I think I knew that that was the reason why, mm-hmm. but also part of it was that I thought that. An added reason was because we talked so much about Kurosawa, and Kurosawa was a total fanboy for John Ford. Right. Um, yeah, so that's interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, Tiny, was this your first time watching The Searchers? It was my first time watching The Searchers. Yeah, my first time, for sure. Okay. My first and, John uh, Wayne movie, too. Yeah, oh, that wow. was uh, John Ford movies, John Wayne movies, oh. any exposure there? John Ford, I feel like I've seen... He did The Grapes of Wrath... I haven't seen it. Did he do Sierra Madre, Treasure of Sierra Madre? Was that John Ford? No. That was John Houston. Oh, yeah. Yeah. He did Stagecoach, which was, I think, the only only John Ford movie and the only John Wayne movie that I've I've ever seen before The Searchers. I don't think I've seen a John Ford movie then. Interesting. Okay. I recommend Stagecoach. It's pretty cool. Okay. Um, But yeah, I I kind of... uh, I, I... if if you don't mind me going into my kind of overall thoughts on the movie, um, I wrestled with this movie <laughs> myself. Um, so it is kind of a, I mean, it's kind of a, I don't want to say standard, but it is, like you said, it's a highly influential movie. I mean, it is very well regarded. And I think watching it in 2021 carries with it some, some, Issues not, not, and I don't want to, I'm going to sidestep like any racial insensitivities and everything. Cause I mean, this was in 1956 yeah. that it was made and it's set like after the civil war. So, you know, I'm sure that there's a lot of, uh, authenticity to the, uh, <laughs> gross racism <laughs> present throughout it. But my kind of the, the stick in the mud that I am about it is that, when you have a movie that is so influential, like incredibly influential on an entire genre and influencing entire like careers of filmmakers that are like, like huge names in film, like, like you said, um, 
the uh, like Marty and first name basis and <laughs> and Spielberg and everything just were so influenced by this. When you have that, you kind of it's it's hard to watch the movie, watch the original movie, and kind of divorce yourself from like everything that uh, <laughs> everything that it influenced and like the way that those influences were done to better effect in terms of just storytelling and basic filmmaking. So that was what I kind of struggled with. What I will say, my issues with the um my issues with the whole overall movie cuz it it does feel a little bit kind of just it I wasn't as engaged as I was hoping to be in this movie by any stretch. But the big thing that I was just stunned and blown away by was the the visuals like the Mm -hmm. the like wide shots of just the the epic filmmaking of just the wide vistas and the the landscape of like the desert and and all of these locations and and even so much so that i kicked the uh the table and and caused my (laughs) caused the a little bit of a bump in the recording but um no, just those those big wide shots, the uh, the people like on horseback in formation and all, like all of these things just were gorgeous, gorgeous filmmaking um, wrapped around a package that I just didn't I just wasn't uh, too keen on. So mm-hmm. how do you guys feel about the searchers? Go ahead, Tiny. <laughs> well, I um, I'm not really like a Western guy, like I'm, mm-hmm. not, I'm not into the genre. Um I've seen some, like I've seen um, Good, Bad, and the Ugly and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so it wasn't really in my wheelhouse in that regard. Um, but uh, I I had a sort of different reaction to it. I was I was kind of into it. Okay. Um, and I enjoyed it to an extent. Um, mm-hmm. I think of these three, it's my least favorite. Okay. But um, I I still had a, had a pretty good time with it. I think it was. Mm-hmm. Um, fun to experience John Wayne for the first time and how he really <laughs> all the stereotypes and, and uh, yeah, cliches uh, about him are, were confirmed in this movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, he, he totally is that kind of guy. Um, but I, I, I've never, um, I've never been critical of him in that regard because I think, um, I think the, the characters he portrayed, which this is probably one of his most famous, uh, if not the most famous character he ever portrayed, um, is very true to who he was as a person. Like, there's mm-hmm. a lot of a lot of stories about John Wayne and Hollywood, and uh, how he was kind of he was a hard ass, he was a tough mm-hmm. guy, and um, mm-hmm. he he lived up to that. And so I I respect his talent as an actor, and I respect the persona that he built because it was not it wasn't some imitation, it wasn't some mm-hmm. bullshit thing. Like he was. That's who he was. He was just kind of a a, a gruff guy, tough guy. Yeah, and it's guy, it's funny because like there are I don't know how much of like the trivia that I read is confirmed or like uh, even apocryphal, I guess. But um, like there are there are notes in the in the trivia for this movie that are like just examples of him being like a fucking just really nice guy. Yeah, <laughs> uh, like him like stopping the production because one of the native American actresses, um, was upset because she had to miss like a family's like wedding or something. And like he, he had the production stopped and then he had his private plane fly her to the wedding. Oh, wow. Um, I think that that's, that's check out the trivia on IMDb. Hmm. Um, so like they're like, I don't know how much of that is, you know, just kind of 
legend or or kind of playing into a reputation or or kind of counter counteracting a reputation that he had um in terms of like storytelling from from filmmaking and everything mm-hmm. but i thought i thought that was interesting um yeah yeah but i, I do agree with the visuals though i thought mm-hmm. um and and one of my favorite parts i have no idea if there's ac- if it's accurate at all but the costumes were just like really fun <laughs> yeah. like the, the i don't I, I don't i have no idea if they're even remark remotely accurate mm-hmm. but it just felt like an old western and uh like especially most notably john wayne's outfits um mm-hmm. the, the different clothing that he wears throughout just really it felt iconic and uh um, I don't know. It sort of made me think of like, uh, it made me think of, um, Marty McFly and back to the future part three, where he, <laughs> he goes back to the old West and he's wearing this ridiculous, like Serape outfit and he's right. so out of place. And I feel like if you had transported John Wayne and the searchers back to actual like 18, 1871 or whatever, this is supposed to take place. Uh, he would have been so out of place and looked so wrong. I have, I have no clue. I don't know if, if anything's mm. accurate at all, but it just felt really fun. It felt like Hollywood wow. Western. It felt like iconic. costumes okay i I, I thought it was fun i don't know if it's accurate but it's fun okay yeah so ben you have a uh you you have a difficult relationship with this movie um how how do you feel about it partner (laughs) (laughs) yeah you know that was um my biggest question going into this because i remember really hating the way that the racism uh was I don't know if I'd say glorified, but uh and not even really celebrated. But like my biggest question was like yes, I I was pretty confident that the film knows that John Wayne's character is racist, mm-hmm. but does it condemn him for it? And I don't think I got that question answered this time around. Um because it's, uh, I don't know, the, I mean, the ending is just so abrupt mm-hmm. and it's, there's such a heel turn that we can get into a little bit later, but, um, I, I don't know. Plus like the other thing that I came away with, uh, from, a, from this viewing is just like, it's just kind of a mess overall. Like, mm-hmm. The I I remembered the storyline about like the uh the girl who he writes to the the young guy uh yeah. writes to and Lori. their their family back home and I remembered that storyline but I did not remember how much of the movie it actually takes up right you know? yeah and it just does not fit in with the rest of the movie it, you know it threw me for a loop it was distracting it really did and it's just. I get like it's it's probably thrown in there for comic relief, but it's just mm-hmm. so weird and out of place. Yeah, and like Ebert even writes in his essay about it, uh, which I have nice. highlighted somewhere. I think. Yeah, while you're looking that up, the uh, I totally agree. The there, I don't think that it's. I, I think his. I wouldn't say his racism is glorified or anything, but it is. It is. Uh, it's, it's, it's messy. Um, yeah, I'll have more thoughts on that, but anyway, what, so what did Ebert say? Ebert says, uh, 
talking about the the family back home <laughs> this second strand mm-hmm. is without interest and those who value the searchers filter it out patiently waiting for a return to the main storyline okay i can understand that like there are yeah. there are portions of even great movies that i love that i you know don't totally care for mm-hmm. but i just can't like this is the 12th greatest movie of all time, according to the AFI mm-hmm. top 100 movies list. And I cannot understand a movie with that many problems being so high on the list, you know? Yeah. yeah. I, I agree that it is uh, from a story construction standpoint and script standpoint. It's, it's kind of sloppy. Like, yeah. Yeah. Uh, most notably, I think I was confused at how many, girls were taken yeah one was from one family the jorgensen family or right. whatever their name mm-hmm. was uh and then uh, the, his niece uh was taken essentially and so that was confusing there um the timeline got a little confusing too which, that was my big one yeah well, it's one thing i liked about the movie i thought it was really amazing that they stuck with this for the characters stuck with this uh, vow to get this girl back mm-hmm. right. for years. That and was cool, but it, it wasn't translated that well. Exactly. Yeah, I mean, I I like the kind of unsung passage of time because mm. I mean they they could have just left that part out entirely about them being gone for so long, mm-hmm. right? And uh, like they they barely mention it. So. Yeah. Yeah. This was not a good movie to watch in multiple sittings. <laughs> I will say that. True, yeah. Um, but in terms of, of Ethan's uh, character arc, John Wayne's character arc, um, <clears throat> he, I, I feel like he is maybe celebrated in the movie or the movie, I don't know, the lore surrounding the stature of this movie in pop culture and in influence of other filmmakers is that he is a, I I don't know if I'd go so far as to say like the prototypical anti-hero, but he is like, he has the makings of like an anti-hero, like someone that you don't like or really respect, but he's the central protagonist of the movie and you're supposed to root for him. And I didn't find a way into his, to his character and a lot of the things that he did and a lot of things that he represented were bordering on reprehensible mm-hmm. and the movie and the script and the storytelling, the plotting does does not find a redemptive arc in that like at all. Like Ben said, it, there's kind of just this really quick like heel turn at the end of the movie that just felt really, really lackluster and uh, unsatisfactory to me. And what I kept thinking about um, throughout the movie is that I, I remember no, I remember hearing that like in the last season, last few seasons of Breaking Bad, uh, Vince Gilligan patterned a lot of the storytelling of that of those last seasons of Breaking Bad and the the arc of of Walter White and Jesse Pinkman after a lot of the, like he drew a lot of inspiration from the Searchers and everything so. Mm-hmm. Kind of knowing that, like, I appreciate the the significance of this movie in terms of better properties that have come to rise in terms of influence and everything over the years. But I just, I felt really, really unsatisfied with with Ethan's kind of ending. Because it's not like, and, and we'll dance around spoilers, but 
but it doesn't like it could have it could have it could have worked to redeemed him to redeem him but it doesn't do enough to try to redeem him and then on the other side it could have gone away where it condemns him and he becomes a tragic figure but it doesn't go that route either <laughs> like right i don't know it just it just didn't sit well with me and in terms of like uh, like uh, having seen i don't remember what year this movie came out but uh this this movie i'm about to reference but last year i watched for the first time shane mm-hmm. and that movie is just incredible with its characterization and like its pattern patterning of uh, the archetypical Western hero and everything. And having that relatively fresh in my mind in terms of classic Westerns, when I go and watch The Searchers, like, I'm just like, it's a recipe to be completely disappointed with, with this movie. So what do you, what are your guys' thoughts on the arc and everything? Yeah, I, I think to me, he, he was just, the character was so dismissive of everyone else. And yeah. he, he, he was the authority on everything. Mm-hmm. And for me, the most egregious was um, his his sidekick. The other, I can't remember his damn name. Uh, uh, the, the character's Martin? name, Martin Martin, yeah. Martin Pauly, I think was right. Name. Yeah, um, he's dismissive of, of him the entire time because he's basically an adopted member of the family. Mm-hmm. And he just criticizes him the whole time, like, "Well, you're not part of this family. She's not your blood. What are you still doing here?" And it's like, what? What's the problem? The guy <laughs> put his entire life on hold right. to come help you and save this his sister essentially. So mm-hmm. it's like what and and I I feel like that's never resolved because mm-hmm. he sees it all the way through to the end. <laughs> I, I and and he's an effective partner in in mm-hmm. in this quest if you will. And and that that was the part that bothered me the most. Is it's like why why can't you cut this guy a modicum of slack? Yeah. <laughs> like I just don't get that. Like um, like, come on, John Wayne. It's 2021. The family, <laughs> the family you have is the family you find. Right. <laughs> I don't know. I just, that bothered me throughout, and just the yeah. fact that he was he was so dismissive of everybody. That'll be the day he said. Yeah. That, like, what four times? That right. was another piece of trivia that I read. That it's it's I, this might be like apocryphal, and this might be just legend and everything. But um, there was it was reported that uh, who was it? Buddy Holly and. Yeah whoever else wrote uh, the song That'll Be The Day, they went and saw this movie in the theater and they were so taken with it that like it inspired them to write that song. Wow. Like that's where the mm. lyrics That'll Be The Day. Hmm. I don't know. But. Yeah. Um, to go along with that, um, like I said, I was, I was wondering if the movie would condemn uh, Ethan for being a shithead and a racist. Mm-hmm. And there's the famous shot, the final shot of him standing in that doorway. Mm-hmm. And I, I understand that it's meant to imply like he's standing outside this house and he's like on the outside looking in at, I guess, mm-hmm. a new world, if you want to mm-hmm. interpret it that way. And so uh, Ebert also wrote, the shot is famous and beloved, but small counterbalance to his views throughout the film and indeed, there is no indication he thinks any differently about Indians. Right. It's like... Yeah. It's just, it's a lack of growth. It's unearned. Yeah. Yeah. And I think part of what frustrates me is like, he starts out when he's first introduced, I find that really interesting. Like mm-hmm. his backstory that he never really expands upon, like he comes back 
I think three years after the Civil War ends. Mm -hmm. So nobody knows where he's been since then. Right. It's implied that he has been in like Mexico or something, or like he gives that medal to one of the kids. Yeah. And it's almost implied that he like stole it from someone. Uh, and then he's got all that gold and mm -hmm. it's almost implied that he stole that. So I find that really interesting. And then it just kind of goes nowhere throughout the rest of the movie, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So again, it's, and, it's just yeah. pretty sloppy. And it, I don't yeah. know, I don't even know if you could accurately call him an anti-hero because like mm -hmm. anti-heroes, at least my understanding is like, they are doing shitty things for a noble purpose, you know, or they yeah. have good intentions, I guess, but a bad way of, uh, of solving their problems, you know? Yes. And no, I think kind of the archetypical kind of anti-hero is more self-centered in that respect. Right. Uh, when it comes to that, like they may have like some, on the surface they might have like some uh some like somewhat noble reasoning for it but oftentimes in my in my view it's always misguided or or just kind of a excuse i guess like mm. i don't know just off the top of my head it could like it could be just an excuse for shitty behavior like uh, i don't know just following someone and then going into the capital or something i don't know <laughs> um, i don't know it's stupid yeah. um but yeah and and I I don't know. I yeah. I had a thought, but I got derailed on my thought yeah. process. I uh, I immediately started disliking his character when he uh, it was like the opening scene or the opening part where he uh, um, the captain of the Texas Rangers comes in and wants to mm -hmm. basically deputize deputize him to bring him in, and he's like he's like, well, I'm I can't make two oaths because I already made one oath to the Confederacy, or right? Whatever. Right. And I was just like, all right, fuck off, like. <laughs> Not, not because, that was another thing, yeah. Not because he was wrong, but it's like, okay, how can you still have an existing oath to something that doesn't exist anymore? Right. And the person he made the oath to is dead. Like, I don't know. That just pissed me off. Like, it's just such a stupid way of thinking. Oh, 100%. And I, I kind of clocked that, too. And I was kind of annoyed by it, specifically because I kind of felt like, and maybe this is me projecting a lot onto the movie, <laughs> but I kind of felt like I felt very annoyed by that specifically because not not necessarily because of the lacking logic like within it but more because it felt like okay this is fucking western cinema just glorifying the losing side and doing the whole fucking south will rise again bullshit yeah, yeah. and like that's the reason why we have fucking dumb fuck you know <laughs> idiot racists all across the the US thinking that they can fucking fly the confederate flag and have it not be completely fucking bonkers insane stupid bullshit yeah yeah <laughs> right. anyway um <laughs> but yeah he so, just yeah. wasn't a likable character at all and i, no. I think even anti-heroes have redeeming qualities and right he didn't really have many <laughs> if all right if any uh yeah so i i don't know wasn't wasn't really enjoyable yeah, yeah. Did you guys catch the uh, influence on Star Wars in this? The uh, original Star Wars. I I think I may have, but I can't remember it now. I there's didn't. Uh, when John Wayne goes back to the house and it's all burned up. Oh yeah. yeah oh yeah. whoa. That's exactly yeah. what I thought of. Huh. Uncle Owen and Aunt Peru. Yep. Wow. Yeah. 
that I didn't even register with me. Holy mm-hmm. shit. God, like Shocking. when you, I know <laughs> May the 4th be with you. Um, <laughs> so we're recording this May the 4th guys. Um, anyway, um, yeah, that's interesting. Cause I, I thought when you said that the influence on star Wars, my thought, my immediate thought was, uh, like the big wide shots of the desert and everything. Right. Like I, yeah. was I mean, yeah, the, that. George Lucas, I'm sure is mm-hmm. another huge fan of this movie. Yeah. Um, yeah. Interesting. Did you guys, uh, apparently, uh, Travis Bickle from Taxi Driver was, uh, based on Ethan Edwards? Oh, I can I can see, see that, that a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. I thought you were going to say he's in the movie in the background. Like, <laughs> what? <laughs> that's interesting. I, I can definitely see that. See, yeah. that, that's a way to write an anti-hero, right? Mm-hmm. Right. So, right. I don't know. The real the the best antiheroes are the ones that Todd Phillips rips off to make the to make Joker uh decades later. <laughs> he speaks for all of us. Yeah. Um we live in a society. Um anyway. Um yeah, any other real thoughts on the searchers, guys? Not really. Okay. No. I'm just glad that I was able to finally talk out loud with someone about this yeah yeah um if if i were to ever i mean the next time that i talk to martin scorsese oh yeah i wouldn't want to ask him about like (laughs) raging bull or goodfellas or anything i would want to ask him like why the fuck do you love this movie so much like (laughs) please somebody please enlighten me on it yeah it it still baffles me yeah Mm -hmm. i don't well if I ever talk to Marty again, uh, I will just be like, what is your problem with these super superhero uh, fantasy movies <laughs> with magic rocks in them? Um, just kidding. That's such a stupid thing. Anyway. Um, uh, yeah. Uh, parting thoughts, ratings, and uh, would they be on our great movies list individually? Tiny, uh, thumbs up, thumbs down, and status of great movie. Uh, it made me really want to shoot a lever action rifle. Also, that's the thing. <laughs> oh, which it, I've, a what? A lever action. It's oh, lever. lever. They shoot it and you crank it and then oh. that's, that's a lever action rifle. Okay, yeah. yeah it made me really want to shoot. I've never shot mm-hmm. one. I always think they're, I think they're really cool yeah. and fun and I've, it made me think of that. Mm-hmm. Which, yeah, gun nut. Yeah. Anyways. That'll you, be the day. The, <laughs> <laughs> nice. <laughs> Fuck, that, nice. nice. Um, I was going to derail it a little bit and be like... Um, I don't remember if this is in this movie or anything, but just in like just genuine question, um, the revolvers where they have to slap the hammer yeah. down and everything is that like a real thing? Yeah, yeah, they still okay. make guns like that. Nice. It's called a single action. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that seems like it would be fun. Right, yeah, partner. <laughs> right. Yeah, I've never shot a revolver either. Well, I have, but not mm. not like a big, not like they use in this movie. Right. Anyways, um, thumbs. I, I'm actually gonna. Go ahead and give it a thumbs up because I again okay. I was kind of into it and I did enjoy it, mm-hmm. but like again of, of these three, it's my least least favorite. I I think the good, the bad, and the ugly is a way better movie yeah. um, mm-hmm. that I've seen. Or like Three Ten to Yuma, which I've never seen the original, but mm-hmm. the remake with uh, Russell Crowe and yeah. Christian, uh, Christian Bale, Bale is yeah, phenomenal movie. Nice. Um, so yeah, I, I I would I would give it a, a thumbs up, but um, uh, definitely wouldn't be on. A, any kind of top list for me, mm-hmm. but I would replace it with. Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna actually say Tombstone. I think. 
Oh, interesting. Keep it wow. in the genre. And okay. That movie is so fun. The characters are great. Yeah. It's it's over the top and mm-hmm. kind of silly, but it still plays with the uh, the archetypes and the kind of the standard cliches of the, of the Western. Mm-hmm. Um, I love that movie. Yeah. Um, you wouldn't yeah. put uh, Adam Sandler's The Ridiculous Six? <laughs> <laughs> I never saw that one. Yeah. I could not bring myself to watch that one. Oh, Yeah. Is it still on Netflix? I yes, it is. probably. Yeah, I think it's because it's, it's a Netflix movie. I think right, it's, it's their movie. On Netflix yep. in perpetuity. Oh, my God. Yeah. Yeah, thankfully it's never popped up. Right. Any, well, except for when it came out, you know. Cause Until we it. revive Summer of Sandler. Yes. God. Or we do <laughs> the ultimate trilogy, um, The Ridiculous Six, The Magnificent Seven, and The Hateful Eight. Oh. Yeah. Hateful Eight was a really good Western. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, not really in the vein of most westerns. Right. But yeah. Good movie. I like yeah. that movie a lot. Western adjacent. Yeah. Maybe yeah, not Western in the adjacent, maybe not in the vein, but definitely in the bloodstream. I guess I don't know. Be the same yeah, thing. It's yeah. A bit of a stretch there. Yeah, a little bit. So, yeah. Anyway. Uh, um, yeah. Uh, my rating and and everything. I would probably say. Mm, honestly, I would say thumbs down. Yeah. Okay. I just I, even though I love the just the filmmaking aspect of it. I just I was so disengaged by it that you know I just I couldn't I couldn't uh, I just couldn't deal, um, and my uh, my pitch to replace it, it it obviously would not make it on my great movies list, but my replacement choice would be the remake of Three Ten to Yuma. Nice because I haven't seen the original, even though I own it on Criterion Blu-ray. Um, just flexing there. Um, <laughs> anyway, but that that remake is just magnificent. I love it so much. So. I That's, almost went yeah. with that, but I wanted to go with something else. I don't know. Nice. Okay. Nice. Nice. Ben? Um, yeah. Ben? Um, I don't know. I mean, yes, I, I think there are some decent filmmaker or filmmaking aspects of this. Like, yeah, it is a great uh, movie that should be watched on a big screen. Um, and... I don't know. The, like I said, I, I was really intrigued by uh, John Wayne John Wayne's character's introduction and the prospect of that, but then it all just, I don't know, falls apart, and it's just a mess, uh, like with mm-hmm. with the rest of the, the side story. And then we didn't even talk about the, the scene where they go to the fort and they visit the, the other people that have been abducted by the Comanches right, who yeah. are basically yeah. insane. Yeah. And I don't know. That part was also a mess. I kind of forgot about that. That's yeah. pretty, pretty egregious. There was right. a wedding too. Yes. <laughs> um, yeah. yeah. A silly ass wedding. Yeah. Um, so I don't know. Probably thumbs down. Okay. Uh, what I would replace it with. Um, another Western that I was kind of surprised is not on this list, uh, High Noon. Have you guys seen that one starring mm. Gary Cooper? I have not. I have not. Yeah. It's a really great, um, like allegory for like McCarthyism. Mm. Oh, interesting. Gary Cooper is this sheriff of this Western town and he's like trying to get other people to come and help him defeat this gang and nobody else will help him. So it's kind of this, you know, metaphor for McCarthyism and all that. Okay. But so that's what I would pick if I would keep it in the Western genre. But I think what I would actually replace it with is another great anti-hero movie. And that's training day. 
Oh, oh nice. okay. Nice. Yeah. Huh. Awesome. So, Is Training Day not on the list? No. Huh. Okay. I don't know if there's any Denzel movies. Oh, wow. I've heard um, High Noon has one of the best long takes ever. Hmm. Like a long tracking shot or something like that. It's been a while since I've seen it, um, but I have been meaning to rewatch it. Yeah, I'm surprised it's not on this list. Hmm. Yeah, nice. Um, all right, well, we are going to go into our third review. Um, are you guys good? Do you guys need a break or anything? I'm good. Okay. Go ahead. Okay, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to play the second interstitial for, for this. So, uh, yeah, and you guys aren't going to be able to hear because you're not wearing headphones. So <laughs> we're going to go into our review of Paths of Glory after this little segment here. In the dialogue created an atmosphere that really involved me. I was surprised how caught up I got in this movie and in the behavior of the characters. This is a very good movie that is sometimes hard to watch because of the level of violence and depravity that is unusual even among crime films. The words right well, they have the words exactly right. You know what I like too was the stylistic freedom they gave themselves. All right, so our third and final Ebert's Great Movies List pick for this uh, edition of the Ebert's Great Movies List project is a uh, movie that was selected by Tiny. Um, Tiny, do you want to give us an introduction of the movie and why you chose this particular movie for this edition of the Ebert's Great Movies List project? Yes. Uh, so the uh, Paths of Glory uh, came out in 1957. Uh, the plot synopsis is after refusing to attack an enemy position a general accuses the soldiers of cowardice and their commanding officer must defend them and i picked this because it's a very early kubrick movie i think it's his second movie um and stanley kubrick is one of my favorite filmmakers of all time Mm -hmm. and uh this was a bit of a blind spot for me also um i've said before on the podcast how much the subject of World War One interests me. Yeah, and uh, yeah, because 1917 was your movie of the year. Movie for yeah. 2019. Yep. Mm-hmm. So um, yeah, the subject it just interests me, and it's a uh, not a very well researched uh, subject in American history. So mm-hmm. um, I'm, I'm always intrigued by it, and this is supposed to be a very iconic World War One story and movie. So I, I wanted to see it for that reason. Nice. Nice. Yeah. Very nice. Um, so I'm looking, I think this is maybe his third or fourth feature. Is it? Okay. I think, I don't know. But, um, so, well, yeah. Well, what did, what did you think of it? And <laughs> yeah. How did, how do we do this? Yeah. How did how, Paths of Glory. <laughs> Paths of Glory. Um, so, uh, I, I ended up liking the movie, but it was, I, I didn't know a lot about it going in and, I kind of wanted to go in that way, and and I, I for whatever reason I had the impression that it was more of a like traditional war movie and uh-huh. more actiony and stuff like that. Because um, some of the stuff that I had seen from it and heard about it were the uh, supposedly the war scenes were iconic, so that's what mm-hmm. I was looking for, and it's really not about that, right. um, really at all. And so I was I was sort of taken aback when when I got into, we got into like the meat of the movie. And the main part of the movie, it, it kind of surprised me. And so I just, I wasn't really in the m- right mindset for the type of movie that it ended up being. But I think it had enough of like a, a social commentary and enough of some, some classic Stanley Kubrick work and, and his, his filmmaking and camera, camera work that I'm such a huge fan of mm-hmm. that it kept me interested and kept me, uh, kept me 
you know, going along with the story and everything. So I ended up, I ended up liking it, but I was a little taken aback by mm-hmm. the formatting of it. Hmm. Um, yeah. Interesting. What ben, about you guys? uh, how about your history with it? And what, had you seen it before? And what did you think? I uh, had not seen it before, uh, and really liked it was really impressed. Um, and yeah, I, I was kind of going into it expecting a full blown war movie, and uh, I, I enjoyed those scenes and that that uh, that section of the movie, but then the rest of it was just equally uh, incredible and equally uh, riveting. Um, I I was really impressed, really blown away. Nice. And that's really interesting because I kind of had, I went into this kind of with the opposite mindset with you than you guys. <laughs> um, I went into it expecting it to be light on like war stuff and more about whatever human element it was. Because um, I'd read the plot summary and I just assumed, oh, surprise courtroom drama. And uh, I just figured that it was going to be a, like, that was going to be the crux of it. So when it, when we actually got the, like, the shots of, like, going through the trenches and uh, them, them uh, doing their, their um, run, (laughs) their charge, charge, yeah, Yeah. their, the attack, Um, like, I was like, I was very pleasantly surprised and something that really just blew me away and i don't i don't know why this was such a surprise to me because i i think i was under the assumption or i was under the impression that paths of glory was a troubled production from kubrick i i haven't researched it but for some reason i think i got it conflated with um i think his first movie the killers i think was one Uh, that he disowned Fear and desire fear and desire Hmm. was that one that he disowned and and didn't like it i don't know I just yeah. know it was his first movie. Okay. Um, either that or The Killing. Um, like, there was some problem with the production. So, I got that conflated with this. And so, for some reason, I wasn't expecting, like, that that extraordinarily, like, Kubrick trademark camera movements. Like, the tracking shots and just the, like, the, the really, I, I don't know how to describe it, but just wide frame and like when when they're going through the trench and he's he's going through and he's talking to the to the troops and everything um it kind of it, it was funny because i was watching it and i was like oh i th- i think i retroactively kind of kind of went to ding 1917 a little bit because <laughs> like those like the the scenes of going through the trenches and everything is like very clearly modeled after these sequences and like seeing it in like in in black and white as well, it was just stunning and really immersive for me. Um, so all of that I found really compelling and interesting, and and good. And the kind of human aspect of it, and the the kind of the themes that it plays with, this kind of um, kind of like uh, I don't know if I'd say anti-war, but like this just kind of craziness of inherent of of war and everything. Something that Kubrick, you know did a lot with um one of my favorite kind of snobby things is that um my my family uh at least like growing up my brother and my dad uh, my dad was in the marines uh, like before way before any of us were born um but (laughs) like um 
growing up, they they liked movies that were in their interest and everything. And like that, like it wasn't like like they didn't analyze movies or anything like that. Mm -hmm. And so in my snobbish way, I was just like, like they're like, oh, like we love the first half of Full Metal Jacket because that's just the boot camp stuff and everything. And it's so authentic to what it's like to be in the Marines and stuff. And I'm like, right. The whole point of it is like how like and like it's anti-war, whatever. There are themes that are completely uh, incongruous to what you're watching it for. (laughs) Um, But there's some of that here in in Paths of Glory as well. Like when I won't really give anything away, but kind of that stretch at the end, like the 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 kind of really the parts that really come home at the end are just are really, uh, really captivating and, and intense. Yeah, you uh at least my recollection of most Kubrick movies is that he's kind of this detached uh not well, maybe not robotic, but there his characters don't have a whole lot of uh depth or emotion to them right. or at mm-hmm. least his protagonist. Uh but I felt like almost all of the characters in this one's at least the good guys had this depth and this human humanism to them that I was really impressed with, Mm -hmm. especially the uh, Kirk Douglas character. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, He was the standout uh, for sure. Um, But yeah, I, I, I agree. I feel like he has uh, Kubrick has a tendency to have a lot of his, characters especially the like ancillary background characters are very wooden mm-hmm. and don't have a lot of they're not very emotive <clears throat> and that gets to me in, in his movies because i feel like everything else is so crisp and yeah and and well done but um i think it, it sort of jumped out to me in, in this movie um like the one the one actor uh tim tim casey or he was one of the prisoners uh who was um sentenced uh what's his name hang on uh tim carey mm-hmm. um was private feral um he was just very strange had strange mannerisms and i don't know it, it sort of jumped out to me um some of the other actors were that way as well the kind of disgraced lieutenant character mm-hmm. also mm-hmm. was just wooden wooden is the word that i keep coming back to yeah um and and that sort of jumped out to me in this movie but uh I also had a few script issues. I feel like some of the um the dialogue was just really basic and not not very deep. Um but to your guys' points, the the visuals just more than make up for it. Um, right. Mm-hmm. And, and and the the practicality of again nineteen nineteen fifties filmmaking where they had yeah. to they rented a farmer's field in Germany and basically raised it and, and like, yeah. and just turned it into a uh, trench warfare battlefield um over like a course of three weeks they just dug all these shell holes and trenches and turned it into a wasteland uh and they filmed it practically with you know 600 people running across a field yeah, yeah. really incredible and uh they had a, a tracking camera down in a trench and stuff like mm-hmm. that that's that stuff is so for the word that comes to mind is it's so romantic. It's just such a romantic mm-hmm. way to film a movie. Um, it's again, the, the, the practical effects of, of yeah. uh, filming a movie like this at this time period, um, that all jumped out. Yeah. And I think that that's kind of what I was, what I was getting at with, with my kind of thoughts on it is that for, 
for some reason, maybe this was naive of me to think, but I felt like when approaching an early Kubrick movie, I feel like I wasn't prepared. I, I, I kind of just had this thought in my head that he wasn't going to be as meticulous as like 1980s Kubrick as he's was. Known for. Yeah, exactly. And like you can just see, like, just. I mean, just the sets, this, the production value, the designs. And also, I love that we live in an age where we have HD, like, uh, TVs and, and, like, remastered. I don't know what the process was of, like, I don't know how uh, the film was upgraded or anything like that. But, I mean, just watching it on, like, even just on a 1080p TV, <laughs> um <laughs> I was really engrossed with it and, and really, uh, it, it was really, that, that's a good word, Tony, is, is the romantic nature of it, like the romanticism yeah. of it, not in like the, oh, this is really hot thing, <laughs> but like, just like the, the kind of very careful attention to detail and the kind of the romantic relationship with the filmmaking is really, really evident and just, just, just gorgeous. Um, yeah. 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 Did you, did you recognize, um, Private Arno? The actor who played Private Arno. Uh oh no, I didn't. Oh, okay. I don't think I did. Uh, Joe Joe Turkle is the actor. He was the bartender in The Shining. Oh wow! Yeah. Hmm. I did not. Wow, I that's immediately awesome. picked him up, and he is still alive. Oh wow. nice. He's ninety four years old. Oh nice. shit! Yeah, because I keep wow. I was looking through the looking through the cast of the movie, and it's like. Born 1910, died 1982, or whatever. <laughs> right. It's like, because, you know, it's an older movie, and mm. so all, most of these actors have passed away, but yeah. he's still kicking. Yeah. yeah. Wow. So. Good for him. Right. Oh, he was also in Blade Runner. He was, yeah. He was in Blade yeah. Runner. That's probably his most famous role. Mm-hmm. Um, well, but, he did play janitor in Boy Meets World. So. <laughs> right. Um, I, I think, interestingly, what jumped out to me about this movie was... um. I'd be curious to read the novel too that it's based on. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, I what jumped out to me is the kind of juxtaposition of uh, sort of the brass versus your grunts in, in the military. It's that yeah. uh, that that classic um, give and take between command and the front line, and how how they relate to one another. And one one of my favorite parts of it is when the uh, is he a major? I can't remember. I think he's a general. The 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 guy who's an asshole. Um, he's towards the beginning. He's um, walking through the trench to come give the news to um, uh, Colonel Dax, um, Kirk Douglas, <clears throat> and he's he's going through the trench and he's talking to all these soldiers, and he's got this sunny disposition and he's real excited because he's got you know he's he's got a path in front of him a path of glory. No, he's got um, <laughs> he's got a a, a mission that's going to give that's going to you know make him famous and get him promoted. And meanwhile, all these all these soldiers are walking by him and they're just absolutely wrecked. Right. And they're they're distraught. Yeah. There's the guy who's shell shocked mm. and he completely writes oh, him yeah. off and has him transferred right. and all that. Mm. And it's just it's it's it was an interesting thing to put into the movie because it's so many movies war movies glorify the war and they put all these mm-hmm. amazing things in there and this was this was such a I don't know if it was I assume it was intentional from Stanley Kubrick to have there's one point where he like the the general like looks up at the he looks up at the like the telescope or 
spyglass, whatever yeah. it is, mm-hmm. out of the battlefield. And there's he's talking about how oh, it's going to be a great victory, and uh, the men the men look great, and like and as he's doing that, there's like two guys helping some other guy walk behind him mm-hmm. in the <laughs> trench, and I just thought that was brilliant. Yeah, um, and and just how the 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 brass and the generals, with the exception of Colonel Dax, are. Mm-hmm talking about the men like they're just so expendable they're just yeah yeah they're just a, yeah. a resource to be used up and and like well we should choose 100 men and kill 100 men and it's mm-hmm. just like what the fuck are you talking about that's <laughs> yeah insane Ugh. and they're just doing it so nonchalantly i i loved the just how how detached the brass and the leadership seemed and it's yeah absolutely it's, it's something that's it's present in most military movies or, or in most uh war movies but um the effect in this movie was really uh striking and, and mm-hmm. i thought that was it, it was it was surprisingly prescient for a movie that's this old i think and and uh modern kind of a modern thing and mm-hmm. and, and the movie suffered for it because it didn't do very well commercially right it was banned in a bunch of countries right. because it yeah. was anti-military and they banned it in france and germany and sweden right. and all that yeah. stuff because it was anti-military basically and you know all these frenchmen died and they talked about how shitty the french military was and mm-hmm. yeah um it was kind of an interesting thing but i don't know if you guys picked up on any of that stuff yeah, uh one of the things that I uh found equally fascinating about that general um is like he's got this scar that goes like all the way across his face. That's yeah. right. Nobody ever talks about it or mentions it or anything. Mm-hmm. But I just w- was wondering the whole time like how did he get that? Right. Like he is this guy that has such a visible representation of war or whatever. And he is probably the most coward, cowardly person right. in the movie, mm-hmm. right? Uh, so I, I yeah. really love that detail. That is true, yeah. Mm. Yeah, me too. Um, yeah, I don't know what else to say. <laughs> <laughs> right. uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's the, the thing with the shell shark guy was, uh, I, I had a whole point that I was going to make, but I don't know if I want to judge up all of this stuff but like like there was the, this is a tangent and i'm sorry and we can kind of wrap up too but um there was an article um this is from like february but like there like it was in the group chat that i'm in we were talking about it but a local like school district i guess had a bunch like back in february had a bunch of um parents get up in arms because a uh, because they were teaching about Black Lives Matter or something. Yeah. Okay. And like, I guess there was a controversy with the principal saying like, well, we're just going to talk about that as a political issue and not a social issue or whatever. But I guess a lot of the parents were like, well, this is just like, um, um, before that, I guess, I don't know what it was, but they're like, oh, they're teaching them about Black Lives Matter and this is indoctrinating our kids and everything. Right. And I'm like, I'm very much on record with being just really just not just out of fucks when it comes to like arrogant racism and just completely short-sighted and narrow-minded viewpoints. But I just find it funny that a certain, a certain segment of a certain political parties, like minded people will see something in terms of like school 
as indoctrinating their children, specifically because it's teaching their children about things that are outside of their narrow-minded viewpoints and everything. Mm -hmm. But these same parents are the ones that are like, oh, you know, go headfirst into the military, be completely desensitized to anything, have all of your, you know, individuality and thoughts completely just just taken out of you, which is I mean, kind of the point of the military, not to dog the military at all, but that is something that I feel like Kubrick was getting at with his, with his, uh, with, with this movie and everything. Like Tiny said, with the whole, um, with, with the general, like saying like, oh, there's going to be a victory while, you know, they're visibly shaken up and everything and not just completely discounting a, a soldier suffering from shell shock and even going so far as to just not believe in it or anything. Right. I mean, that's like, those are kind of, those are traits that unfortunately have applications uh, throughout all of, you know, <laughs> modern, our modern times. I don't know. Right. Yeah. I don't know. Uh, throughout our modern times. And it just really goes to show that if life is just a circus and, uh, yeah. Especially under these city lights. Yeah. <laughs> nice. Yeah. <laughs> yep. So, um, anyway, yeah, anyways, yeah, I like the movie, it was cool. Yeah, <laughs> was, yeah. should we yeah. should we give our ratings and everything? Uh, yeah, sure, real quick. Okay. Yes, can I? I just wanted to get your guys' thoughts on the last scene of the movie, mm-hmm. and I, I don't think this is really a spoiler territory because it's okay. so detached from the rest of it, you mm-hmm. know. So, I, I just wanted to get your guys' thoughts. Yeah, I was a little thrown by it, it seemed, mm-hmm. um, yeah. I'm not sure what he was going for there. I, that that's kind of where I'm at. But too. but it's it was definitely effective though because I was right. I was like really into it and at first I thought when the the guy kind of you know brought this girl up on stage I was like mm-hmm. oh boy and just the men's reactions were like really disturbing. I I thought they were getting ready to just pounce on her and right do mm-hmm. God knows what because she's German and because she's a woman and all that stuff. Um it it was really disturbing and then it went to this really beautiful place uh with with a song. Um that was I don't know what the intention was and I don't know if there was supposed to be an intention. Like it was just sort of a this happened like this, this, you know, these, these men are completely wrecked and, uh, you know, disturbed by the war that they've been through that they act this way. But then all of a sudden this little touch of beauty can bring their humanity back to them. I, I don't, I have no clue if that's what Stanley Kubrick was going for, mm-hmm. but it was, like I said, I couldn't take my eyes off of it. It was very yeah. effective and kind of a beautiful scene. I, I agree. And that, I'm kind of falling in line with with it was a little out of place, said. I guess. Mm-hmm. Sort Maybe? of, I don't yeah. Even, I don't know. <laughs> ben, did you have it, a read on it? Yeah. If I I have a read from Roger Ebert on it. Okay, nice. <laughs> oh, nice. Okay. Um, okay. So he says, if the singing of La Marseillaise in a bar in Casablanca was a call to patriotism, this scene is an argument against it. It creates a moment of quiet and tenderness in the daily horror these soldiers occupy, a world in which generals casually estimated that 55% of these very men might be killed in a stupid attack and found that acceptable. This song at the end of this movie makes us feel more forlorn. It is not a release, but a twist of Kubrick's emotional knife. Interesting. Hmm. So Interesting, yeah. I mean, I was going to say those exact same things, but... Oh, yeah. (laughs) Right. He did it first. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Nice. Um, I think uh, I read that 
Stanley Kubrick married that actress. Yes. Yeah. And yeah. she was his wife for Chris Christian Christian Kubrick. Uh, Kubrick, yeah. 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 Pretty so. cool. Yeah. Yeah. Um so uh ratings and great movies. Um do we want to start with me and go sure. clockwise to Tiny since it was Tiny's pick and he can bring up the rear? That's fine. Yeah. Okay. Uh, thumbs up and would be on my great movies list, I think. Um, in terms of the kind of human human aspect of the war and like those human elements to it, I just I found it really uh, really compelling and satisfying. And just, I mean, the meticulous and beautiful nature of Kubrick's like mind is just on display in a way that I frankly was not expecting it to be just for my own biases and naive naivete going into it. So, uh, yeah, those are my thoughts. Uh, thumbs up and on my list, Ben. Cool. Yeah. Same. Um, yeah, it's a really, uh, effective anti-war movie. It's a mm-hmm. really compelling courtroom drama. Um, it was really informative about how court marshals work. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And yeah, uh, another great Kubrick movie. Nice. Sweet. And tiny. Uh, definitely a thumbs up for sure. Um, nice. I, again, it wasn't quite what I expected, but, mm-hmm. um, I, I did end up liking it. I was just a touch disappointed because I, I was, ex- I was expecting more war, I guess. Yeah. And, and more epic sprawling war shots. But, uh, but I was pleasantly surprised with what it ended up being. Um, I think if I had a best war movies, um, list it would be on it for sure but like great okay. movies like best movies of all time i actually don't mm-hmm. think i'd put it on there okay and i would replace it with 1917 okay i was just yeah. gonna ask mm-hmm. if the kind of clear parallels in terms of the filmmaking techniques between paths of glory and 1917 has that affected your or do you foresee it affecting how you like read 1917 or how you how you feel about 1917 on like repeat viewings i mean it's obviously 1917 is obviously inspired by this and Sam Mendes said as much uh Sam Mendes saw the movie when he was a kid and you know his his tracking shots in the trenches in 1917 are basically a rip off of this movie right. uh and and I'm I'm fine with that because um uh, Sam Mendes took the concept of a World War 1 movie with you know tracking shots and mm-hmm. really made it his own yeah. uh, I mean especially Thinking of the scene in 1917 where the character crosses the crosses the canal, mm. jumps into the waterfall, yeah. like that's amazing, <laughs> and uh, I think it I think it outdoes some of the stuff in this movie. So, um, but yeah, I, I I'm not trying to take anything away from Paths of Glory, mm. but uh, I I would I would put 1917 in there, and I think if Roger Ebert had been alive uh, when 1917 came out, he probably would have uh, put it on his list. Ooh. Strong maybe not. Words. Maybe not because you know it's so clearly he he may have felt that this idea was already fairly represented in Paths of mm-hmm. Glory on his list, but uh, I'm throwing that out there. Okay. Okay. Um, on when, Roger's behalf, right? Uh, when I asked you that, I was uh, like, all I thought was like, I'm sorry, I was, I'm, I'm kind of leading the witness. I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> when anyway, did, when did he pass away? Was it 15, 16? 13 13 was 13 yeah yeah it was 2013 wow okay yep yeah um oh that's all of us yeah okay um yeah all right well we're gonna round out the episode with a bit of potpourri we can be really brief with it but um i believe we might take a break 
Yeah, yeah. I yeah. need to stand up for okay. it. Yeah, so we will be back with a potpourri section. Okay, so we are back from a break, and uh, obviously there's no lag with with your listening but tiny uh reminded me so graciously when we were on a break that i forgot that that basically there's a lot of good things about wearing headphones when you're re- recording a podcast <laughs> like monitoring your sound and everything but one thing it doesn't do is uh uh help you remember that there's a completely other segment to do before we go to potpourri so anyway <laughs> Um, I'm sorry I'm such an ass, but um, <laughs> although not really. Um, uh, so before we go into potpourri, we do need to, we have, we have business to attend to. So next time on the Ebert's Grey Movies list, we are going to do part nine. And this is the section of this episode of this special uh, podcast uh, project that we're doing, where we each select the movie that we will select Um for our selection for part nine. So, uh, Tiny, since you're you're new to the fold in terms of this, podge- this project, mm-hmm. uh, do you want to hit us with your, uh, your selection for part nine? Yes, I have chosen uh, Spike Lee's Do the Right Thing. Oh, nice. I've never seen it. Nice. Yeah. Which was your orig- one of your original selections for the first one was last it? time. Yeah, because you said... Yeah. Uh, either paths of glory or do the right thing and i think that there was something like i don't know i had a stupid pun oh i think you gave me a choice and then i i was like well I, i'll i'll uh definitely that definitely spikes my interest and i'll do the right thing and choose <laughs> do the right thing and then i and then it wasn't like streaming at the time so gotcha. yeah. okay anyway so do the right thing nice yep awesome but i think okay. it is streaming now right <laughs> I <checked>. right okay. <laughs> yeah I think it's on Amazon and uh, HBO Max. Okay. Excellent. Good, good. Uh, ben, what is your selection for the next um, one? All right. So, oh, man, I'm really torn between two. Um, all right, I'm just going to pick uh, from Hayao Miyazaki. 2001 okay. spirited away sweet oh nice nice yeah. okay i was it he's he's got that and my neighbor totoro on the list so okay nice. so with um spirited away i know that there is an english language one and a japanese or yes. like an english love do you have a preference on which we watch uh, I'm not a purist, so I'll okay. I'll allow whatever you okay. choose. Okay, I will say that I'll probably I'll probably do subtitles, but the English dub it has one of the one of the actors that dubs in is uh, Vic Mackey himself, Michael Triklas. Yeah. Yep. I've seen that one. That's the one I've actually seen, but I've never Same seen here. a subtitled one. I might okay, okay. try nice. to find that one. And that's on HBO Max. Correct. Yes. Sweet. Um. So I just realized that my first pick is not really available to stream anywhere. Um, let me check my other one, because I... You know what? I'm just going to do it. Ugh, this one is streaming somewhere. <laughs> this is my second pick. Um, as mentioned, we are recording May 4th, 2021. So my choice is 1977's Star Wars Episode IV-A New Hope, <laughs> um, which is streaming on Disney+. Plus. Okay. Um so yeah, so that's I that's I think I've heard of that one. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's uh it's apparently pretty good. Um no, I've uh, it's one of my favorites of of that franchise. 
not saying that much, but um, <laughs> but yeah, I think just in honor of May the Fourth and everything, and just any opportunity I have to just shit can this uh, this franchise. Um, Should we have yeah. Mike on as a surprise guest? Oh, that would actually be a lot of fun. <laughs> we may, I may, we we may figure something out there. Um, <laughs> uh, we'll, we'll have to see. Um, okay. Or Fecus. Um, yeah. Yeah. Anyway. Uh, so we're going to wind down and we're going to do potpourri, which is a section of the podcast where we talk about stuff we've watched, stuff we're looking forward to, just a way to kind of decompress and wind down after a long night of recording. Uh, one of us with headphones on the others without, um, <laughs> good God, <laughs> majority rules. So, uh, anyway, so, um, uh, how do we want to, tiny, do you want to start and then we'll go counterclockwise and end with me? Sure. Okay. Uh, I wanted to talk about a documentary series. I'm late to the party on this one. It came out during the pandemic and was pretty popular during the pandemic. Not Tiger King. <laughs> um, it's called The Last Dance. It is about, Oh, okay. Yeah, it's about the uh-huh. uh, Chicago Bulls in the 90s. Um, if you are even remotely interested in sports, I highly recommend watching it. Um, I just, for whatever reason, it just kind of, I kind of kicked the can down the road on this one and just kind of mm-hmm. put it off for, for no particular reason. Uh, but I watched it over the last month or so. Um, it is absolutely phenomenal. It is the best sports documentary I've ever seen. Oh, wow. Um, mm. the editing is just unbelievably good. Um, it's so, cause it's about the last season that all of the, you know, Michael Jordan, Scottie Pippen, mm-hmm. uh, Dennis Rodman, all those guys, it's the last season they were all together. And it was about them winning a, um, uh, an unprecedented second three-peat of championships. Mm-hmm. And no one thought they could do it. It was just this really, it was an unprecedented thing in the sport of basketball. And uh, it's it's about that. And then it it, it jumps back and forth between that and how the team was built and how Michael Jordan became a giant star and just the past seasons building all to this. It was the way they put those two, they, they jumped back and forth in time was just some incredible editing. Um, nice. And it was a, a series of interviews with Michael Jordan specifically and uh, Phil Jackson, Scottie Pippen, Dennis Rodman, all those guys did multiple interviews for this. It's, um, I think it was, eight, was it eight episodes? I forget. Ten episodes. It was ten episodes. Oh, okay. Um, and, and it's, it's just so good. And, and, and it touches so many things too, because the nineties was the height of NBA basketball. Yeah. I remember I was absolutely obsessed with Reggie Miller and the Indiana Pacers. And for the last 20 years, I could give a fuck. Like, I, I, it's, <laughs> right. like the NBA has just fallen off so much. Um, but during the nineties, you couldn't, uh, everybody was watching NBA. Yeah. It was so mm-hmm. huge. And it's, is really interesting to see the, uh, the footage from these basketball games because it's tens of thousands of white people <laughs> going nuts at these fucking games. It's, it blew me away. Like, cause I remember I, we, we, we used to go to Pacers games at Market Square Arena Yeah, mm-hmm. and that's how it was. You couldn't hear yourself think it was so loud in there. And it's just amazing how much the NBA fell off. But um, the nostalgia of the series just really blew me away. Cause I remember when this was happening, I remember the bulls making their, their big run, their two, three Pete runs in the nineties. 
it was it was the biggest news in sports and Michael Jordan is probably the biggest sports star of all time mm-hmm. right uh, it was just it was crazy to think that we lived through that and and things are so different now you know you can make a, a comparison with LeBron James um, but um, it's it's not the same it's just not the same and and there's no there's no dynastic team in basketball mm-hmm. um, that's that's gonna win three championships let alone two three P championships um, and so just just all of the all of the obstacles that that team had to overcome and and the the difficulties with being the biggest sports star of all time uh with Michael Jordan and and being the member of a team that's like that it's it was so fascinating i i i was really on the edge of my seat for like all 10 episodes and and i just cannot speak enough to the high quality of that documentary it's even if you're not a, really a basketball fan you should watch it cuz it's it's an incredible uh, foray into sports. I've heard really great things about it. It's, it's so good. In, yeah. Did you say this uh, at the beginning or anything? But was it? Is it? Is it produced by ESPN or does it have any ties I, to ESPN? I don't know. Okay, it might. It might be an ESPN documentary. Okay, I feel like because because I feel like it was like originally before it hit Netflix. I think people were talking about it, and it was like on the ESPN Plus app or something like that. Okay, that's mm-hmm. possible. Um, yeah, it is on Netflix now. Right, yeah, that's how yeah. I watched it. Right, and there was a really funny tweet by um, someone at uh, this person has a lot of really great tweets, but um, at Keaton Patty um, back in May of last year. Posted a screenshot of of Michael Jordan, and he said, "Really loving the Last Dance documentary." And he added the he added the close captions of um, just this picture of Michael Jordan, mm-hmm. and the caption says, "How is it legal for a guy to be named Michael B. Jordan? That's just my name, but with a B. I call nine one one every day about this." <laughs> <laughs> so dumb. Yeah. And then the follow-up tweet was for people asking what episode he says this in, it's the one where he talks about basketball. <laughs> That's hilarious. So nice. funny. Um Ben, have you watched this at all? I have not. Okay. Uh and yeah, that is one that I need to get get on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I recommend yeah. it. Even again, if even if you're not into sports, it's really interesting. Nice. Do they talk about Reggie Miller or the Pacers at all? Yeah, because in the uh in their their last championship season, they had to the semifinals. They played, I they played right. Mm, okay, and that was one of the best series uh, of all time, probably in the NBA. From what I could glean when it was all over social media and stuff, I kind of feel like I the the I caught wind of it. When I caught wind of it, it seemed like it was depicting Michael Jordan in a less than favorable light in some aspects. Did you? Is that a thing? Uh, not necessarily. Okay. Uh, he was incredibly candid throughout mm-hmm. it. And like I said, they probably did at least four or five different interviews with him for it. Okay. So he, mm-hmm. I mean, he's in it a ton. Nice. Um, uh, so, but I mean, he, there, there is some stuff, I guess, some questionable actions that he took back in the day and mm-hmm. um, some stuff that I guess he could be criticized for. But I, they, they were upfront with him about all of it. And, okay. And he spoke to all of it. So nice. there's no, there's really no stone left unturned. I'll put it that way. Nice. Um, I don't think I, Michael Jordan was, was a hard ass. Like mm. he was for yeah. sure a hard ass and kind of a, kind of a dick when it came yeah. to, mm. he was all business and just all professional. He wasn't out there to have fun. Yeah. He was out there to win championships and stuff like that. Um, and so he, he, I think you can criticize him for that. Like I, if I played basketball, I don't think I would enjoy being on a team with him, mm. but 
the guy has six fucking rings, and no one else has ever done that. And yeah. He's, yeah. He's an epic competitor and uh, you you just can't touch him when it comes to mm-hmm. that so i if if that that's that's the kind of personality that i think a person has to have in order to achieve something like that and so you can criticize him for it but he's one of the most successful sports athletes of all time so uh yeah yeah that that makes sense yeah <laughs> this is so dumb i'm so sorry <laughs> but i mean i totally get that it would be like being on a podcast and having like this this legend of podcasting bitch about <laughs> headphones for two hours <laughs> yeah ben what's your popery? <laughs> well real quick tiny or have either of you guys seen the series oj made in america no but that i I've I've wanted to, but I mean it's like six hours or oh, something like least, that. Oh, at least yeah, yeah. Yes, I watched that one. Okay, yeah. okay. Also, how does very it, good. How does mm-hmm. it compare to this? I think this is a little better. In really, I mean the editing was again the editing is just the the filmmaking is so clever and so well done. Just okay, amaz- amazing. But uh, OJ Made in America is also really good. It's, yeah, yeah. Brief aside, and I don't like to promote other podcasts because, and this podcast does not need it because they're huge but comedy bang bang in 2019 there is an episode where i can't remember i can't remember who the improviser was but he played he played a character version of oj simpson oh yeah it's so Uh, so funny carl tart carl tart yes yeah and uh the whole premise was that like they went into it with he was gonna play oj simpson and the whole the only thing was that scott ackerman who hosts the show and become is like the kind of the straight man of each episode the only kind of parameter he had was not to like he he wasn't to know anything about the anything about you know the murder <laughs> so <laughs> it just it turns into just this so they this, dance around it the whole time so yeah. funny um and then uh because i guess because the real oj simpson did this on twitter and and did this on like a couple of his Twitter videos or whatever. Like Carl Tart kept injecting into it. Like anytime he finished talking to someone, he's like, "All right, you take care now." Um, <laughs> it's just like, like it, it just it 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 oh it killed me each time. Like it, 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 I found it really funny. Nice, but yeah. Anyway, OJ made in America. I'll have to check it out. Also, and also the Last Dance. Yep. Yeah. Uh, ben Popery. Okay. Um. So this isn't really something that I have watched super recently but just something that i know i haven't talked about on the podcast yet um but the anthology series movies who knows anymore uh (laughs) small acts oh yeah steve mcqueen uh director of 12 years a slave Mm -hmm. and widows um his kind of anthology series from amazon uh that came out last year um and i it's five movies there's so much like discussion about that yeah um but five (laughs) films basically of uh that all kind of center around different different aspects of the west indian community in london uh, and it spans from like the 60s to the 70s and parts of the 80s, I think, um, and just different aspects of the racism that they experienced. Um, there's uh, uh, the the first one is called Mangrove, uh, and it's a 
courtroom drama. It's got Letitia Wright and Sean Parks who give just incredible performances. Um, Tiny, I, I don't know why, but I feel like you would enjoy this series. Really all of them. Uh, yeah, I pretty much guarantee it. <laughs> yeah. I'm a big um, fan of his anyways. Yeah. Um, but uh, Lover's Rock is one that a lot of critics and people have kind of latched on to. And yeah, I th- I think I would say it's the best of the bunch. It's the second one, I guess, technically. You can watch any of them in any order, really. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think the order that they were released in works pretty well. Um, but Lover's Rock is just uh, a really effective, incredible piece of storytelling and filmmaking that just works so well together. It's all just, it's centered around like a house party in the seventies or eighties or something. I don't know. There it's, there's a lot of like funk music and R and B. Um, so it's, it's just, it's all music and there's just very little dialogue and what, dialogue there is it doesn't really matter a whole lot but it's just such an incredible piece of just mood filmmaking and just effective characterization um i i was just blown away by it and i need to watch it again uh but really uh like i said just any of these are just great uh movies to watch all together um john boyega is in one of them yeah he's a police officer who uh experiences racism from the other police officers um yeah uh just uh, just a really solid anthology series all around nice. um yeah nice and that's on amazon prime yes um i still the, haven't watched any of them yeah. the mangrove episode is like two hours long mm-hmm. and then the rest of them are only like 70 ish minutes mm-hmm. long so oh okay uh, Lover's Rock, I think, is just barely over an hour, so it's uh, oh. uh, pretty easy to digest. I thought they were like shorts. I didn't realize that. No. Mm-hmm. Okay. That's where some of the confusion comes in because yeah. a lot yes. of like critics groups and people like I know that there was like at least one critics group somewhere on the planet that was like like they named their movie of the year just Small Axe. Yeah, and like mm-hmm. it's like. That's more like it's presented on Amazon Prime as a TV series, but then the yeah. the episodes are feature length, and I don't know. It's it's yeah. it's a mess. It's a mess. <laughs> um, <laughs> well, that's cool. Yeah, and like I said, that's on Amazon Prime. And uh, do you guys mind if I round us out with Popery? Okay, so something that I forgot to mention at the top of the episode. Um, currently, right now, uh, between April twenty. 29th and oh i don't know when they're running to but uh indie film fest is occurring right now with a mix of virtual screenings um and uh tibbs drive-in screenings and um i uh well i'll I'll just say i am a juror on the american spectrum category um so i'm kind of diving in and watching a lot of stuff. So um, the one thing that I've watched is not on the American... I don't think it's on the American Spectrum uh, category. But um, (laughs) it's a documentary called Welcome to Monterey. And I want to highlight this because I I found it really charming. It's a documentary by a filmmaker named Lauren Z. Ray, 
who uh, grew up in Logansport, Indiana, and then moved to New York and became an actress, I think. And um, the documentary, I'll just read a plot summary, is as their population dwindles, their businesses are all about gone. This town in rural... This town in rural Monterey, Indiana, fights for its life. An in-depth look into small-town life, Welcome to Monterey, follows the uh, town's journey to their 20th annual Labor Day Festival, capturing the people's passions and doubt about whether this town has a future in today's world. And I am someone who has always been kind of enamored and uh, kind of romanticized the kind of small-town life, like small-town American life. And this was such um, this was such an interesting documentary in the way that it depicts its its subjects, so the the town of Monterey, Indiana, which is just like the population is two hundred and eighteen people, and it goes through a lot of the history, but it does so in a way that that isn't um, it it isn't. Um, it it isn't like cumbersome or it isn't like a history lesson or anything because the historical aspects of it, like things like a, a gas station burning down and the closing of a business and the opening of a business, the business changing hands and stuff, all of these different aspects are told from like from the talking heads of the citizens of the town. And what you kind of come away from it with is this, what feels like a... Uh, it feels like an an agendaless an agendaless um, uh, depiction, just like this this I I guess love letter and just kind of uh, depiction of this town and the the lives within it, and it's it's really well put together and um, it it has a lot of interesting tidbits. And if you're someone who is interested in that and like. I wouldn't even really say rural like America, but like the lesser depicted small town aspects of, of Americana and everything. Um, definitely seek out this documentary. It's, it's currently playing at Indie Film Fest. You can check it out virtually. Um, I don't know if it's region locked to Indiana or not, but uh, check it out. IndieFilmFest.org and their website for this documentary is welcome to Monterey.com. Um, and I enjoyed it. So yeah, check that out. Now I'll be reporting back with some more Indie Film Fest stuff as the film festival progresses. Uh, it yeah. runs through May 19th, May 19th. Thank yeah. you. Yes. Um, to, to piggyback off of your mm potpourri uh i checked out a a block of shorts that nice. indie film fest offers the tiny and i are wearing shorts <laughs> <laughs> um i think it's called the the block is called seeing the humor in it mm-hmm. and it's got like five or six uh offerings um maybe more than that uh yeah five or six uh but one of the ones that drew me to it is one that's called David and it stars, um, uh, William Jackson Harper and Will Ferrell. Oh, (laughs) oh, okay. And I, it was hilarious. I will say that much. It it kind of plays out kind of like an extended SNL skit and it's really funny. So if, uh, anybody out there is looking for a block of shorts to, to, check out check that one out cool nice what was that one called again seeing the humor in it okay or the the the, short film yeah just called david okay nice it's like 13 minutes long sweet 
All right. Awesome. Well, that'll do it for this episode of Obsessive Viewer. Um, I almost forgot the title of the podcast. Um, <laughs> join us next time. I don't know when we're actually going to do the next Ebert Great Movies List Review uh, project, but join us for when we're going to be talking about uh, Star Wars and... Do the right thing. Do the right thing and... Spirited away. Spirited away. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, literally just named those like 15 minutes ago. Um, okay. So, yeah. I uh, hope you guys enjoyed this episode and that'll do it for this for this episode. And final, final thing. Ben, uh, your um, Happy Madison stuff still going up on Midwest Film Journal? Sure is. Yeah. Where are um, you at now on that? Um, today, the one that just posted is The Do-Over. Oh, uh, yeah. Uh, the... Spade and uh, David Spade and Adam Sandler. Mm-hmm. So you're you're uh, deep in the Netflix era of Sandler. Um, last week was the, the first one, gotcha. the Ridiculous Six. Mm-hmm. Um, and then yeah, it's all Netflix from here on out. Nice, um, awesome. Next week is Sandy Wexler. Oh yeah, which hmm. is kind of good. Oh, nice. <laughs> yeah. All right. We'll check that Which out. Which is at... why we should bring back Summer of Sandler. Right. <laughs> oh. We'll see. We'll see. <laughs> All right. We'll uh, check that out. A link in the show notes and everything. And that'll do it for this episode of Obsessive Viewer. And I need to press this button. Um, so, yeah. So, that'll do it. Thank you guys so much for listening. And we'll see you next time. Thanks. And now, here's a short clip from our Patreon-exclusive RSS feed. To hear the full clip and more exclusive Patreon content, go to patreon.com slash obsessiveviewer and become a patron at the minimum rate of $1 per month. Thank you and enjoy. But <laughs> Love, love, love this music. It is, it is maybe, maybe definitely all, uh, like, absolutely, like, my favorite piece of film music in existence. Like... This and like this is my favorite piece of movie music. This and the version of it that's played at the end of the movie. It is on the same level to me as my favorite piece of TV music, which is Michael Giacchino's Parallelicam from the series finale of Lost. Um, they're they're both just incredible. So yeah. The Obsessive Viewer podcast is edited and produced by Matt Hurt and presented by ObsessiveViewer.com. For a full archive of our episodes, go to obsessiveviewer.com slash ovarchive. You can also like our Facebook page and join the OV Facebook group at facebook.com slash theobsessiveviewer. And follow us on Twitter at obsessiveviewer and at obsessivetiny. And follow our recurring co-hosts at IamMikeWhite, that's me, at RAFeckus and at Burger underscore Lurker. If you enjoy the show, please take a couple minutes to leave us a rating and a quick review on Apple Podcasts. This is the easiest way to support what we do, and all it costs is a little bit of your time. If you'd like to donate to the podcast, you can make a PayPal donation at obsessiveviewer.com donate, or support us on Patreon for recurring donations and access to commentary tracks and B-roll audio recorded exclusively for patrons at patreon.com slash obsessiveviewer. Every donation goes toward paying the fees to keep the podcast running and is greatly appreciated. For official Obsessive Viewer merch, including shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more, visit our Tee Public store. You can find a link to the store in the show notes of this episode and at obsessiveviewer.com slash donate. 
or you can simply search for Obsessive Viewer at tpublic.com, T-E-E, public.com. For information about our annual live event showcasing short horror films from local filmmakers, check out shocktoberinirvington.com. And for an archive of all our events, as well as news about potential future events, head over to obsessiveviewer.com slash live. For more podcast content, you can find Anthology, Matt's solo podcast covering The Twilight Zone, and other classic and contemporary science fiction anthology TV shows at anthologypod.com and on Twitter at OVAnthologyPod. You can also find Tower Junkies, a podcast where Matt and Tiny share their love of all things Stephen King and his magnum opus, The Dark Tower series, at TowerJunkiesPod.com and at TowerJunkiesPod on Twitter. And finally, check out The Secular Perspective, Tiny's side project podcast, which tackles current events and life's big questions from the perspective of secular hosts Chad and Amanda at thesecularperspective.com. The theme music for The Obsessive Viewer comes courtesy of the band Loudlike from their EP, Mistakes We Must Make. Additional bumper music is provided courtesy of As Good As It Gets, which can be found at facebook.com slash asgoodasitgetsband. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next time. Kitty! Kitty!